and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I am your host, Austin Glidden, and today we are brought to you, as always, by The Film Yap. Go check out thefilmyap.com for all things film, because, as you know, they never shut up about movies over there. Now, you can also reach us at on social media, at Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Just search Medium Cool Pod. So, um, I feel off. What's happening? Medium Cool Pod. That's the thing. Um, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, it's facebook.com backslash medium cool pod. You can also search medium cool pod on Instagram and, uh, at medium cool pod on Twitter. You can also find me, your host, Austin Glidden on, uh, Twitter at Austin Glidden. You can also email us, email the show at medium cool pod at gmail.com. And, uh, yeah, that's all the things. Now today's show, this will be part two of our Cassavetes marathon, and I'll be talking with Jake Bottolieri about A Woman Under the Influence from 1974 and The Killing of a Chinese Bookie from 1976. We watched the original theatrical 1976 version, not the 1978 recut of the movie. So um, it'd be fun. Uh, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Uh, we have one more, uh, part three uh, of the Cassavetes Marathon that will be coming up in the coming weeks, and we will be covering... Um, opening night and love streams, and those would be the uh, last two of a total of six Cassavetes movies that we have watched and covered by the end. So uh, I hope you guys follow along. Maybe you've seen a couple of these. Maybe it's been a while since you've seen them. I encourage you to rewatch them because for Jake and I, it's been a really great experience, kind of rewatching these things and and kind of getting an updated kind of 2020 opinion of them. Um, and I've been pleasantly surprised with how much I still really love the movies that we have watched so far. Um, but in terms of A Woman Under the Influence and The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, although it is no secret that I like both of these, uh, I can't wait for you to hear the conversation. I hope it's great. Uh, so, uh, two things. One, I want to talk about New Year's resolutions, uh, which I don't subscribe to really, uh, but, you know, that's what it's going to be. And then uh, my some 2020 movies that I've watched, I realized I haven't talked about kind of new current movies that I've watched. And I've been uh, prepping for our top 10 of 2020, which will probably be sometime in January at the latest first week of February, probably. But I'm just trying to give myself some time to get caught up. And I've been watching tons and tons of 2020 movies to get caught up so that I can have a list that will match Joe and the other participants that we have for that conversation. Uh, Yeah, that episode. Uh, But first, the New Year's resolution thing. Now, I kind of jokingly title it that, but there are a few things I want to do with the show, and uh, if you if you agree or disagree with these, or if you want to see something else, please hit us up on inst- on um, social media, Instagram included, uh, and just, you know, medium cool. Hit us up, uh, send us a message, or post about us, whatever, and let us know what you want to see, but what I'm planning on doing, my new resolution for the show, is to try to keep episodes between 60 and 90 minutes. Because let's face it, like our, I think our first, second, and third episodes were somewhere between two and a half and three hours, and we talked about like 10 movies in that time. Come on, uh, we can do better than that. So uh, I think we're going to focus on that, um, and I want to work in audience feedback and involvement more. We haven't had a, 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 a in the past, uh, We let's just say we could have had a better response. Uh, and I would love to see more, and and so I feel like the best way to do that is for me to obviously give you more opportunities, and hopefully we can build that. But um, the way that I want to do that, though, is I want to focus on one or two films per episode, unless we are doing a list. But I want to do you know focus on one or two. So, for example, next week, 
Joe and I are going to try something a bit more structured. Uh, so tune in to, to see that. We're going to be focusing on Todd Haynes' movie Safe from 1950, uh, 1995. That's Todd Haynes' Safe from 1995. That was my choice. Um, it's a birthday celebration for Todd Haynes. He was uh, born on January 2nd, so we're going to tie that in. Um, and I've never seen Safe, so I chose that one. But I let Joe choose the other birthday celebration, which actually the birthday is the day the episode drops, which is January 5th, and that is Hayao Miyazaki. And uh, that's a big one because he is like the auteur of anime, right? And uh, he did uh, uh, the three choices Joe has are My Neighbor Totoro, Princess Mononoke, and Spirited Away. He's going to choose, and next week we will find out what his choice was. I'm very familiar with all of these, so I'm excited to see which one he picks, and we're going to go for it. Um, he hasn't seen any of these three, so I'm just outing him now. So I'm super excited to see what he thinks of these. So next week, we're going to be talking about Todd Haynes' safe and uh, and uh, Joe's choice between My Neighbor Totoro, Princess Mononoke, or Spirited Away from Hayao Miyazaki. We're going to have a big birthday celebration for those two. Now, uh, those are some of my New Year's resolutions, though, in terms of trying to keep episodes around 60 to 90 minutes. Um, and getting more feedback and involvement with uh, with the uh, audience, and just to focus on fewer films per episode. I get really worked up because I love talking about movies. So of course I talk about a bunch, but you know we're 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 still pretty young. This is episode twelve, and uh, you know we're kind of working uh, through some things, and um, you know trial and error, and seeing what. Uh, you know, throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks kind of a thing. And uh, part of what helps things stick is you giving us feedback. So uh, all that to say, thank you so much for listening. Um, now, uh, I've already talked for like six minutes, so I'm going to jump over real quick to some 2020 movies that I've seen. I thought this would be an interesting thing uh, to just kind of bring up and give a few little, uh, you know, quick little snippets of, of uh, what I think of these. I don't want to do full reviews on them or anything right now, but... Um, yeah, so, uh, as I said before, I was way behind, and before I started this episode, or this, uh, uh podcast, uh, I was super behind for, like, a couple of years. Like, people would bring up stuff from, like, 2018 I'd never heard of. Now, if this were, like, you know, 20, even 17, but let's go back to, like, 2015 when I was writing for the film, yep, regularly and stuff, I mean, I would have known every movie. Like, I was just that guy that would research everything, and I was, it was always really rare for me to have at least... Whether I knew what the movie was about or not, to not know what it was was just a rarity. So, basically, I had only seen, prior to starting this podcast, like eight movies from this year or something. It was a really surprisingly low number. Of course, you know, the pandemic didn't help. But uh, I also didn't seek much out. I mean, most movies were surprises to me. And again, that's just, I, I don't know, when I realized that, it kind of bummed me out and made me want to do better. So, um, you know, once the podcast started, I wanted to start watching 2020 stuff, but I was prepping for each episode and watching other movies. And even if we were doing a specific movie on a specific person, I still watched more outside that movie so I could have a better, more well-rounded opinion of that filmmaker or, or, or that film or whatever. And so uh, I didn't give enough room. So for the past couple of weeks, I've been watching 2020 movies, and I went from eight, and uh, now I'm in like the mid-20s or so in what I've seen. Uh, so I'm, I've made uh, quite a bit of progress, and I'm going to keep working and uh, watching through those so that by the end of January, I've seen enough movies that uh, if when I make a top 10, it's worth a damn, basically. Uh, but here, here are a few that I've seen, and I'll give you a little snippet of that. 
So um, I uh, watched David Byrne's American Utopia, which is essentially Spike Lee, a Spike Lee directed, um, you know, canned theater of sorts. Uh, it's uh, basically taking David Byrne's American Utopia Broadway show and uh, Spike Lee films it. And I mean, he really knocks it out of the park here. I think he 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 hits. Uh, it seems like his camera is omnipotent. Like you know, it, it kind of can be anywhere and uns- it goes unseen. Um, and so you know, just seeing two brilliant minds like David Byrne and uh, and uh, Spike Lee collaborate. I mean, it really was a flawless collaboration. If you haven't seen American Utopia and you want to see essentially a concert film, um, but that is so well done. Uh, check out American Utopia. That that was a, a really good one. Uh, there's a documentary on Netflix called Athlete A. If you're familiar with the film Spotlight from a few years ago, uh, imagine Spotlight, but it's a documentary. And instead of it being about priests and uh, them essentially uh, molesting or assaulting uh, children, um, this is a documentary about uh, Olympic gymnastic physician, at least one, I... I, I maybe two, I don't know, but so a physician who essentially um, assaulted uh, several um, Olympians, uh, young young ladies. And I know it sounds terrible, and it, it, it is. It's absolutely abhorrent. The film's actually really good, though. It's actually very powerful, and um, the story in real life was actually uh, uncovered by the Indy Star, which is uh, Indianapolis. It's about an hour away from here in Indiana. And uh, the Indianapolis Star uh, kind of got this out there. So that was really cool. Um, but yeah, the, the, the movie's like a bummer. But by the end, I mean, it's it's pretty uh, not I don't want to say uplifting, but I mean, it's powerful. I don't know how else to say it. I, I didn't feel bummed out at the end of that movie. I felt like they did it very well where it, it's a, a pretty big bummer throughout. But I don't know. I felt like the there was something cathartic for the victims at the end. And so that was really cool. Next movie real quick is uh, Color Out of Space. This is a movie that I recommend um, only because it's really wild. <laughs> uh, this is Nick Cage, uh, Nicholas Cage being Nicholas Cage uh, in a H.P. Uh, Lovecraft adaptation. And uh, it, it's a really wild kind of sci-fi, I don't know, there are elements like body horror in it, and uh, it's a really weird movie. It's really pretty cool. I don't think it's like a great film, uh, but it's very entertaining. And if you if you're a fan of Nicolas Cage being Nicolas Cage, there are moments where no one else could do this as well as him. Like uh, his role is so great. Um, check out Color Out of Space. Seriously, uh, and and the filmmaker, which I'm I'm. You all know that I'm terrible with names, but uh, the the filmmaker hasn't done a movie for like, I don't know, I want to say something like 20 years, I'm actually looking it up right now, so I can, uh, Richard Stanley, Richard Stanley, uh, I'll tell you the last time he made a movie, actually, um, we're in the writer, so the director, Color Out of Space, prior to that, uh, in terms of a feature film, it's been since like 1992, I think, if I'm reading this correctly, or 94, either way, it's been a long long time. Uh, and, uh, so he comes back with this movie and it's a, it's a very, uh, bizarre HB Lovecraft thing. Uh, you know, I, I have a few quibbles with it, but, but it's uh, really cool. I, I do recommend seeing it if you want to see something a little new, uh, for this, uh, for this year. 
so uh, I also watched on Netflix Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Really great can theater, uh, you know, adaptation of a play. Uh, really, really great performances. Uh, Chadwick Boseman, which is an actor that a lot of people like, but I've never been a fan of, really. Uh, he As Black Panther, he's fine. Um, you know, whenever he did the James Brown movie, the biopic, uh, he was good as James Brown, but he's, it was fine. Like, it didn't make me want to look into him or, or watch more of him. He just kind of did the job, and I was fine with that. That's my opinion, you know. Um, but in this, I think he's really good. Um, very, very, probably the best thing I've seen him in personally, uh, and I'm sure I've missed some, but Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, really great. Also, um, I'm really bummed out because I keep forgetting names. Let me, let me, uh, double check this one here. Um, I can't, I can't believe I can't remember her name. Uh, Viola Davis. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Viola Davis plays Ma Rainey and she's fantastic. So is, uh, uh, Coleman Domingo. If you don't know him, he plays a guy named Cutler really, actually, the whole band is excellent, uh, yeah, the, the movie's quite good, this was kind of a, a four out of five type movie for me, um, really fun, totally happily watch it again, um, but it basically follows Ma Rainey and her band, and, um, uh, Levy, which is played by Chadwick Boseman, is this, uh, really, um, what's the word, uh, he has high aspirations for his sex or for his uh, trumpet abilities, and he he's basically an artist, and he doesn't want to play this old-fashioned blues anymore. And so uh, it's just a, a really interesting, uh, a really interesting film. I think it kind of falls apart a little bit, in my opinion, toward the end. Uh, I feel like some people might have found it uh, powerful. I found it um, a bit. I don't know. It kind of lost me a little bit, I'll say. But great, great movie, though. Uh, I, th- I think it's uh, really well made, and you should definitely go check that out. Uh, Mank, which is a Netflix movie. Um, uh, wow, I, I'll i just say this. I'm going to keep this one short. Mank, directed by David Fincher. Um, this is a movie that stars Gary Oldman, which means it should be absolutely fantastic, and he is fantastic in it. Um, but, uh, it was written by Jack Fincher, which is David Fincher's dad, uh, years and years ago. And it's about Herman J. Mankiewicz. He wrote Citizen Kane, um, and he, he had a, a pretty thriving career, uh, through that time. And, um, basically David Fincher made this movie that his dad wrote and it's, uh, kind of old fashioned. He used a lot of old fashioned techniques. It's beautiful black and white. I mean, the whole thing, uh, there's a lot of excellent aspects to it. Uh, but the problem is in my view that it focuses way too much, uh, on trying to be old fashioned without building any kind of believable or, 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 uh, meaningful conflict. Um, yet it's all there. Like the story's inherently, uh, there's conflict inherent in the story, um, but somehow it just it gets lost in everything that's happening. Um, I would love to talk about this one at length. I'm not going to bore us in the intro here uh, with that movie much longer, but um, it could be better, and I wish it was. Uh, Small Axe, this is uh, um, Steve McQueen, the director. Uh, this is his kind of five-part anthology. I've watched the first two so far. So I've seen Mangrove and Lover's Rock, both of which are excellent. You should check those out. I watched Soul, which is the new Pix- Disney Pixar movie. Uh, and uh, I don't seem to like it nearly as much as a lot of other people. But uh, it, it is a good effort. Um, I really wish they would have just stuck with more of the uh, world, like real world. Oh, hold on. 
the movie is about this guy who basically falls down a manhole and and uh, his spirit goes to this uh the um uh what is it the the before something or another it's not it's not heaven it's not hell it's not purgatory it's like this it's where all like the the baby souls go before they're brought to earth and put in babies um and and this uh this jazz musician uh is basically just trying to get back to his body cuz he finally got the gig that's going to help him take off right um, and so he, he needs to get back so he can perform and finally do something with his life, uh, in music. And, uh, man, that whole part of it, I was really into. And, and there's a point where these two souls, I'll just say it pretty vaguely cause you can go check it out. Uh, it just came out and, um, there's a really great moment where, where there, there are two characters, uh, that switch bodies They're the, from the spirit realm, they go to earth and they switch bodies. I think all of that's great too. Uh, but it's, um, I don't know. There was just something, some people love it because it's a little different from a lot of Disney Pixar stuff. And I agree. Um, but unfortunately, uh, it didn't land with me as much though. I do still find it emotional and I do still find it powerful. Um, so definitely go check that out. Uh, Christopher Nolan's Tenet. Not great. Okay. I found it very entertaining. Um, but my opinion, I think it really falls apart in the last 45 minutes, which would be essentially the last act of that movie. Um, but it's, uh, I found it very entertaining. I am I'm, I'm not a, uh, uh, Christopher Nolan apologist or anything. I can totally critique his movies cause they're definitely not perfect, but I will say this, uh, this is probably one of, if not my least favorite of his, which is kind of a bummer. Um, but, uh, yeah, cause I, you know, I'm one of the, I feel like I'm one of the rare people that likes Interstellar, um, and I like Inception. Um, again, I don't think they're great films or anything, but I really enjoy them. Oh, I, I do think Dunkirk is actually phenomenal. Uh, really, really great. But, um, anyways, Tenet really let me down. Um, I hope you see it and you can let me know if you agree or disagree. I just think it uh, kind of falls apart toward the end, but here, here, here's my, probably my favorite one that I'll mention today. Uh, it's, uh, Brandon Cronenberg's, uh, possess, I always want to say professor, but it's possessor, possessor, um, Brandon Cronenberg being David Cronenberg's son. Um, but man, he really has his own vision here. And though you can feel a little bit of that, that old Cronenberg in it, um, Brandon Cronenberg's his own, his own visionary. Uh, this film uses practical effects flawlessly, beautifully. It's about a corporate assassin, uh, who uh, basically can um, infiltrate other people's brains and then assassinate people with this other body. And then um, basically they they expire that body by shooting themselves in the head. Uh, they expire that body. And then the actual assassin who possessed this other body to do the hit, uh, this assassin just gets away with it. I mean, how can you trace that, right? Well, this is essentially a movie about uh, this assassin getting stuck in someone's head. And if this doesn't sound that cool to you, please go out of your way to see this. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if this makes my top 10 of 2020 once we get there. I have a lot of other movies to see. Um, but I am extremely impressed with this movie. Keep an eye on Brandon Cronenberg. I guarantee he is going to be a name of this generation uh, once... Uh, once it's history and we can look back, um, if, if he keeps making movies like this, I mean, uh, Possessor is absolutely excellent. I know, but some people call it horror, but I think it transcends that it's not, it's very gory, um, at times. Uh, but I think this is just a really good film. Like, I don't, I think it just, it doesn't have to be a genre thing. Uh, but check out Possessor. Very, very good. 
I, I can't recommend that one enough. But that's enough about 2020 movies. I will talk more about those, um, you know, on future episodes so you guys can kind of keep up to date with what I'm watching. And hopefully, you know, I'll tell you some movies maybe you've overlooked and you didn't know about or, or you haven't gotten around to. Uh, hopefully my recommendations can help you out. But until then... Uh, Just remember that next week we're going to be covering Todd Haynes' movie Safe, and we're also going to be watching one of three Hayao Miyazaki movies, whichever one Joe picks, between My Neighbor Totoro, Princess Mononoke, and Spirited Away. I'm looking forward to that. Um, I can tell you right now that uh, my New Year's resolution, it's not New Year's yet, so I'm allowed to cheat on this episode because we're definitely going over an hour and a half. However, I'm really, really going to try uh, to keep that one. Uh, I'd like the episodes to be a little bit shorter, maybe. We'll see. We'll see. Let us know what you think. Uh, Medium Cool Pod. Check us out on uh, all the things. But now, I want to go talk to Jake about A Woman Under the Influence from 1974. This is part two of our Cassavetti's Marathon. I hope you enjoy. I'll ask you one question before we really jump into this. Have you? How many are are you up to date at all with 2020 movies? Have you watched anything uh, from this year specifically, or very much? I, I think anyone listening that hasn't seen Palm Springs should see Palm Springs. It was actually written by a, a friend of mine who I went to AFI with, Andy Sierra, and directed by another friend of mine from our same AFI class, Max Barbacow, and. Uh, I got to read a really early version of that, of the screenplay that became Palm Springs. And so uh, seeing that film was kind of surreal because it was like certain things I remembered like vividly from the draft I read three years ago. And certain things were like completely new creations that either Andy Samberg brought to the table or, you know, Andy worked out with uh, Max and Andy Sierra, the writer, you know. But uh, everyone should see that because it's really fun. Uh, the Devil of the Time was also an interesting experience for me because that is based on a Southern Gothic novel that was released like right when I was done with Ball State and like moved back home. And it was kind of like the first thing I read after I moved back to uh, Chicago. And uh, that novel is very, the novel is very, very good. And it's very, <laughs> it's very novellic. Like it's very much not a movie because we bounce around time periods. Certain things are achronological, you know. And um, watching the film is an interesting experience because they they really tried to like, they really tried to make it a movie. And there's certain sequences that translate to film so well that it it feels like. Um, you know, it's like it's like Cormac McCarthy-esque. It, it feels like everything that's good about something like No Country for Old Men mixed with everything that's good about, you know, something like, you know, Wise Blood or something like that. But um, other, it's very messy in other times because it, it is sort of like your, your perfect example of way too much in the novel that they needed to cram into, you know, a two hour and change movie and have mm. everything make sense. You know, and and to do that, they added. Um, I'm a big fan of inherent PTAs, inherent vice, but I do think certain things don't need to be in it that he just put in it because he was a big fan of the book. Like I think that film doesn't need any narration, but I think he was like so in love with some of Pinchon's like prose on the page that he needed 
you know, to get uh, uh, what's for it, Joanna Newsom. He, he like needed to get someone to say it just because he liked it so much. There's a little bit of that in Devil All the Time. They actually got the author of the original novel to read chunks of voiceover that are basically, it's basically half prose from the novel, half shit that they wrote just to make how quickly they're burning through the story like make sense. Yeah. And un- unfortunately it's, it's, it feels pretty rushed and pretty sloppy up until about the halfway mark. Then the second half, it's almost like the way they did the first half was to like burn through everything you need to know to make (laughs) that second half really feel good. And that second half is like a really, really excellent execution of the novel, but you're kind of forced through a little bit of messiness to get there. And um, Pattinson is amazing as he always is. Um, uh, uh, help me out. Uh, new Spider-Man. Oh God. I don't remember. Uh, Tom Holland. Yeah, that sounds right. Let me double. Yeah. Tom Holland is the protagonist. He's really good. Um, just the casting performance is great. Even, um, I always forget her name. She's a Australian actress. She's younger. Uh, Eliza Scanlon, who's also like a writer and director, even, even though she's like in her early twenties. She plays like a small but really important character, and she just does fantastic. So, um, I'd say anyone that's into um, Cormac McCarthy, anyone that's into Coen Brothers, anyone that likes kind of that Southern Gothic, like homespun, like murder plot type of film, should check it out. Um, putting up with the <laughs> putting up with the sloppiness of the first half rewards you with the second half, and. Yeah. Uh, that's sort of been a highlight of the films I've seen this year, but obviously I've, I've been an awful uh, film lover this year just because it's been very difficult to um, sort of keep, keep, you know, keep pace with the new stuff coming out when uh, the theatrical thing is totally done for us. So here pretty soon, we're probably going to do a top 10 of 2020. So I don't want to give too much away either, sure. but I will say about the devil all the time, which I haven't seen yet. Um, but I have all all I know about it is uh, Harry Melling, who plays. Um, oh, I just had it in my head. He's a Harry Potter character. Yeah, uh, um, uh, Dudley Dursley. Yeah, 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 yeah. You got mm-hmm. it. Um, but uh, Harry Melling puts pores real spiders on his yeah. face, not CG spiders. No. real spiders. And and Disgusting. it looks great. It looks great. But I'm such an asshole. It's it. It was the Jim Cornette thing when I was watching it. Like, I assumed they were fake. Like, I just assumed it was CGI. So it's it's that thing Cornette always says. We're, like, going back to wrestling. It's like, back in the day, it was a work, and we got everyone to think it was real. And, like, now everyone knows it's a work, but you have guys going out there and really hitting each other anyway. Like, it's a complete inversion of... So, yeah, uh, kudos to uh, Melling for doing that. But I'm, I'm such a... I'm such a uh, I'm such a goober. I'm watching it. I'm like, man, that's a really good CGI. You know, <laughs> dude, I, uh, he's, he's also really good in the film. I didn't name drop him, but, um, the, the performances and the plotting of the second half is, are the, those are the two highlights of that film. 
Well, cool. Well, I'll have, to, I'll have to check it out, and I'm sure I'll talk about it here on the show. Um, but let's go ahead and move into the first of two Cassavetes movies in our part two of the Cassavetes Marathon. We're going to start with A Woman Under the Influence from 1974. Uh, this is a film that follows Mabel Longetti, uh, a desperate. Uh, she's so desperate and lonely uh, in the film, and she's married to a Los Angeles municipal uh, construction worker, Nick or Nikki, as she calls him all the time, played by Peter Falk. And uh, you know, she becomes increasingly unstable as the film progresses, especially in the company of others. Um, but she just craves happiness so much, and uh, you know. Uh, it sucks because her extremely volatile behavior convinces Nick that she poses a danger, uh, not only to him, but to their family, uh, and decides to commit her to an institution for six months. And, uh, you know, alone with a trio of kids to raise on his own, he awaits her return, which holds more than a few surprises. And, uh, the film was nominated for best actress in a leading role, the Oscar, uh, which was for Gina Rollins. And then uh, for best director for Cassavetes himself. And then Rollins actually won a Golden Globe that year for best actress in a motion picture drama. Um, but I mean, let's let's just face it. The, the stars the stars here are Peter Falk and Gina Rollins. There, there are several um, smaller, lesser known people um, or just like non-actors uh, in the movie. Um, and there's a whole lot to this movie, um, but I'm going to go ahead and start. And, uh, you know, there are so many ways you can take a woman under the influence. I'm going to go ahead and just say that, um, the the first film I'd ever seen by Cassavetes was the killing of a Chinese bookie. This is long before I'd ever really knew much about Cassavetes, but a woman under the influence was the first film I watched by Cassavetes after I knew who Cassavetes was. Right. Uh, so this was my introduction truly into that Cassavetes style um, and, and, and what he does. And, and for me, when I think of Cassavetes, especially up to this point, because we talked about faces before, we talked about husbands before, I think this is kind of um, like the perfect mix of the yeah, proper... Yeah, the difference. <laughs> yeah, of the proper Cassavetes where, you know, uh, before with the first two we covered, it's like hardcore, you know, that fluency you talked about, right? Uh, of like, just like being human beings, you know what I mean? And, and being able to dig into, uh, who and what makes people, uh, who and what they are. And, uh, and a woman of the influence though, takes this kind of in a slightly different directions. It has all of those elements, but there seems to be more of a direct focus when we follow Mabel and as well as, uh, following Nikki at certain points as he's kind of trying to navigate, uh, her instability. And, um, yeah, also, we'll get there. So, uh, you know, just talking about the film as kind of Cassavetes in his directing, um, one thing that I noticed, and this is more related to music, so I guess it's not his direct his direction specifically, but more his vision maybe. I'm not used, and maybe you can correct me, uh, I'm not used to seeing Cassavetes movies that have non-diegetic music. And maybe yeah. I just maybe I just uh, forgotten for our listeners. If you're not familiar with the terms, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, diegetic music is music inside the film itself uh, that characters can also hear. So it's some say somebody plays music in their car, everyone can hear it. Non-diegetic music is uh, like a score, a soundtrack that we hear. So, uh, but the characters can't. So like rock music over an action sequence or scary music that's over like a tense horror scene or something. 
So um, maybe I'm imagining that, um, but it seemed different, and I absolutely adore it in this movie. I love <laughs> yeah. the music over these kind of scenes of uh, Peter Falk and his construction crew uh, just working, or you know, Mabel trying to, uh, you know, basically once her kids are gone, she's just like existing. And sometimes mm-hmm. you'll have this really awesome music. Can you think of another time? prior to this at least but because i think in killing of chinese bookie they might use some music but do you know of it's very sparse it's very sparse i I think it was something that he started doing more in the 70s because the further we get into the 70s the more he does it and opening night might have more scoring than woman on the influence or at least like maybe the same amount but it's definitely something that prior to that, um, it, it, and it's it's interesting doing this where we're doing kind of like two movies, two movies, two movies, because we can track what begins as like stark realism. And the, the deeper into this decade we get, the more and more kind of formal choices he starts making, whether that's a testament to him getting more comfortable as a director or just wanting to do something different, I obviously don't know, but it is interesting to watch um, what a big part it is in Woman Under the Influence, whereas, you know, something like Faces, there's there's basically music when they go to the club and at the end and that's it, you know? Yeah, or they play a record. I mean, again, back to right. the non-diagetic versus diagetic, it's kind of like there's a different vibe there. You know what I mean? And, and, it, and it, adds something, it adds something super different. And I forgot about that. So as mm-hmm. I'm watching through A Woman Under the Influence, I'm uh, you know uh, which I'd seen before, but as I'm watching, I'm just like, holy crap! Like that's what I love about marathons like this because what you just said, it's like you can start to track what the filmmakers doing as you do something like mm-hmm. this chronologically. Even if yeah. you're even if you're skipping huge gaps of their career, if you're watching chronologically, you can kind of map out what they've done across time. Because um, even if we did something with like Scorsese and we did like you know Taxi Driver uh, or like Mean Streets, Taxi Driver. Raging Bull, fucking, <laughs> I don't know what to say after uh, King of Comedy, but then you could go like yeah. Goodfellas and then you could go to like the 2000s. Some, like you could mm-hmm. do something, but you could find a through line even with those gaps. Yeah, and, yeah, for sure, and for sure. With Cassavetes in, in this movie, the, the the music is particularly effective, I feel like, um, and, and I really love it. And and I'm a, I'm a big fan of of music. Of course, I'm a musician as well. Music is kind of my language, like... I feel like sometimes in a movie the music may not even have much of a purpose and I will make per I will have meaning making. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, where yeah, I yeah, will yeah. add meaning to it because uh music so that's just kind of a personal thing. It was like the first thing I noticed from the beginning of the movie is that music just started. Uh and I and I just I, I it just I just felt myself kind of relax and settle into the movie instantly. So that was really awesome. Um and and I'll say this whenever I think I said this when we talked last time, I always whenever I did my list for like my top, I think I did 75 or something. Maybe you and I were talking about this yeah. after yeah. Uh, we were done right, recording. Right. I but, remember. Um, but on my list at the time, and I'm only announcing this because this could change now. Like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but Faces was always like just kind of by default, my just my favorite just because of. I just found it so impressive, even though I think maybe other films have better X or better Y. 
Faces is still really good with X, Y, and Z, right? It just might, there might be other films that do certain aspects yeah. better. Um, and, uh, but man, watching all these movies now, like, even, you know, now all four that were by the end of this episode will have covered, yeah. it's difficult to choose a favorite and, and rank because though I think there's a through line of Cassavetti's style from beginning to end on all these movies, um, now we're getting into a point, especially with the two we're talking about today, where you have like kind of a stark difference. And we'll get there when we talk <laughs> about uh, Chinese Bookie. But um, it, yeah, I don't know. The, the, the music in this is great. And part of me wonders if though uh, getting music rights was way easier, I assume, then than it is now and significantly cheaper, if I had to guess. Part of me wonders with these movies being independent films outside of the Hollywood studio system, um, if that was part of the reason why you didn't have them early on, but maybe he could get a bit more funding and do more uh, at this point. I don't know. That's complete yeah. guesswork. But um, So yeah, the music was something that I, I definitely noticed, but... You know, watching through this movie, one thing I noticed about Mabel, which is played by Gina Rollins, um, and and she's in, with the exception of that six-month period in the movie where she is at an institution, where she gets hospitalized, um, and we never see her there, by the way. We only follow Peter Falk and, and, and their three kids right. um, uh, while she's gone. Um, but before that, we pretty much follow her the whole time. Like, Peter Falk is definitely the supporting actor to Mabel, though he is pivotal. Like, he's an incredibly mm -hmm. important, vital uh, aspect of it. But from the very beginning of the movie, I'm talking the opening scene, well, a after Nikki's construction crew stuff, right after that, we see Mabel trying to get her kids out to go to their grandparents' house, and, and their grandma's there, and she's trying to get them in the car, and Mabel is freaking the fuck out, okay? She's so tense and stressed all the time. She's frantically running around trying to make sure they have everything, make sure everybody's healthy, make sure everybody, you know, has their toothbrush and their bike and, like, all these things. And uh, from the beginning, you see, you start to see kind of the the, the early uh, hints of Mabel's nervous impending nervous breakdown right right, right. Uh, which all moment, the seeds are being planted and oh yeah. from the opening dude from the beginning so uh I, i'm curious if if you'll uh, specifically remember what i'm talking about here but there's a dinner scene in it or not a dinner really it's it's i think it's probably more closer to breakfast but nikki and his crew have been working all night so they show up in the morning um right. or afternoon or so and uh he invites all those guys they're gonna have spaghetti so they make these huge spots pots of spaghetti and sauce and of course Mabel's trying to help and she's she's being really awesome she has her apron on she's running around this is 1974 and so like she's you know running around getting all the stuff all the guys are sitting there and they're having beers like at whatever time whatever time it is you know yeah uh, in whatever morning Cassavetti's o'clock yeah. Cass yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah poor guy um yeah, yeah dude that sucks that he died that way. But uh, what what is it yeah. called? What is it? Cirrhosis, Cirrhosis of the liver. A sepsis is in my head. I'm like, that's not the right word. Cirrhosis yeah. of the liver. It's like, got to be terrible. Basically liver failure. You you pickle your liver until it just stops working. Yeah. Homie loved uh, the booze. But so like, um, but yeah, so they're sitting around this dinner table and there's probably like 10, 12 people there or whatever. And it's Mabel on one full, like one side of the table. Nick is on the opposite long ways side of the table, you know, at the head of the table. And then he has all of his buddies. And, and, and in this dinner scene, I think this is such a, like the, 
most pivotal early scene, right? Not the most pivotal scene overall, but early on, this is kind of like the kicker uh, for me where in this dinner scene, um, you know, everyone's eating, everyone's enjoying themselves, having a great time. It's that kind of what we talked about last time with Cassavetes, that that seemingly um, flowy, uh, seemingly mundane conversation, but really it is yeah. building something, but on the surface it really does look like nothing. We're kind of just waiting for whatever whatever match gets sparked. Oh, yeah. You know? And this scene, I feel like, I can't remember now, I should have written it down, but I feel like it goes on for like 10 minutes or something, which in it's movie long. time is a it's, long it's, time. Yeah. It's um, one of those like first half of husband scenes where oh yeah really really protracted and we're kind of waiting for you know the shoe to drop oh yeah 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 and th- like I said this is super pivotal so so they're sitting there and Maple's being very quiet she's clearly in a different world and but but the thing is it, the different world uh, the more I th- I've thought about it is like in her head she's super in her head she's really trying to kind of feel out the room while everyone else is just like careless, having a good time. Peter Falk's telling stories. He's laughing at his buddies. Everyone's having a good time. Mabel doesn't say anything. She's just taking it all in. And then uh, people start singing. And this one guy starts singing, and he's not very good. So this other dude starts singing with him. It's like it's like a opera, and it's uh, like you know an Italian song or something. Um, and don't quote me on that origin, but <laughs> but it's some other language. And he's singing. And he has a beautiful voice, the second guy who picks up the song. And Maple gets up, and she's just in his shit. Like, she's just, like, like looking around his face, like, trying to figure out, like, how is this voice coming out of you? Like, this is so cool. And she's hyped, dude. And, uh, you know, the guy stops singing. Everyone claps. And she's just, like, clapping so loud. And she's, like, so hyped. And she's kind of yelling. And the person next to her, or to the guy that sang, the, the gentleman next uh, to him, uh, she's like, why don't you get up and dance? Let's dance. And the guy's like, no, no, I'm good, I'm good. And he's kind of laughing, but she keeps pestering him about it. Like, no, let's dance. This is the perfect time. Let's dance. And the guy's starting to get a little uncomfortable, and Peter Falk, uh, Nikki, her her husband in the movie, uh, you know, he's just like, Mabel, stop. Like, it's okay. But she just keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. Yeah. She's just like, you know diligent right and and eventually peter falk ye- just yells like sit your ass down like it's like and the plate it's that like you know daddy hit mommy at the dinner table but we're all still yep. trying to eat moment right where like everyone's okay, like everyone gets quiet and you could you could cut the vibe man with oh the, yeah with the paring knife yeah yep yep and and everyone's heads down no one's saying a word peter falk is like kind of embarrassed a little bit you can tell and mabel is beside herself like not hysterical, but I mean, like you can but tell by her it, face. She's hurt. It, she's it, really hurt. Well, it it kind of breaks her, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not just telling the story of the movie. You can go watch it, uh, listeners, if you haven't seen it. But I'm getting to a point, though. Uh, you know this this scene is is a as Gehring in our film classes, uh, our professor Wes Gehring would say, it's a signature scene, right? Like this is one of those signature scenes because this is Cassavetti's directing at its best. I'm not saying that he doesn't do it as well in other movies. I'm just saying this is when he's the best in my mind. This is him doing the thing. This is him doing the thing because it, it the 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 tension is not only is the tension palpable, right? Like you feel it as a viewer, but it is also developing these characters. So Peter Falk is dealing with um, the mental illness of his wife. Okay, and then you have Mabel, who now has to navigate and cope with 
her own mental illness. So as soon as he yells at her, she sits down and she blows raspberries like the whole movie. So she's always just like, yeah, like and and she'll like throw her her like she's hitchhiking with her thumb. I don't know why. We're, it's we're doing a... that Elaine Bennis dance from Seinfeld. You know? <laughs> no, it really, really is, and it's yeah. such a peculiar thing. But she is like she's on. It's like such a good performance to me because it feels so idiosyncratic. You yeah, know what yeah. I mean? Like it's it is so sure. belonging to her character. So she's just sitting there and she's like mouthing words inaudibly, like. You know, but you can tell she's like repeating what Nikki said, like, sit down, Mabel, sit down. She's like, sit down. (laughs) She's just like, and people are like watching her and they like uncomfortably get up and like go to the kitchen to put their plates in there because it's just too much at this point. And, you know, eventually they leave and it's a scene between Mabel and Nikki and, and I'll leave that for people to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, but that even that scene, like there's a resolve in that conversation, but it's from that point on Mabel's never the same. Like now you've right, seen right. parts of her mind that you can't take back. Like you can't give mm-hmm. it back. Like now you see that everywhere. And, and I, I we'll get to performances in a minute, but I, 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 I really attribute not all of this to Cassavetes. I mean, of course, Gina Rollins is phenomenal here. Uh, I really think she's incredible and the Oscars fucked up by not giving her the, uh, the, the lead role thing because uh, because she's really great. Um, but do, do you, by chance, remember that diner scene? Uh, the diner scene? Do you, yeah. do you remember that scene very well? Do you? Do yeah. You, do you have any feelings? I was, about I was, it? I was trying to, I was trying to look up who won it instead of her that year. Very unsubtly. <laughs> Please do. Please do. Yeah. Yeah, it's but um cut this cut this break out. Yeah. I'm definitely so not going Ellen, to Ellen Ellen <laughs> Burstyn. Yeah, Ellen Burstyn won for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, which oh. is like a great performance. So it is well I yeah. guess I can only fault them so much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um Joe and I talked about our uh, Martin Scorsese when his birthday is November seventeenth, I believe. And so we did a whole show uh about him and I got to that and I was like the main reason to watch this movie is Ellen Bernstein. <laughs> like, right. like there's right. not a whole lot more for me to really recommend beyond like, she's just so good in it. So fair enough. I would have picked Gina, Gina Rollins, but, um, but she, Ellen Bernstein's great. So I'm, I'm, yeah. I guess I'm, I'll give them credit there. Um, but moving forward, I guess, uh, there, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, uh, if I could just jump in, I would love for you to about, jump in. Go for it. Um, in my experiences, a lot of people that haven't seen a bunch of Cassavetes films or have only seen a couple and didn't really know that he did this one and this one, this seems to be the one that most people have seen, either in film school, either because they sort of look up him or Gina and like, you know, a lot of the accolades kind of point to this one. In my experiences, this is kind of the one that the most people like have seen and can talk about. And there's an aspect to it that I think sets it apart from um, something like Husbands or, you know, one of the ones we talked about last time. The film seems like more of a Rorschach because obviously Mabel's going through, <laughs> going through some shit in this movie, but... I think the film stands up to diametrically opposed interpretations, depending on what your values are. 
because I've definitely talked to people in the past that have sort of formulated the argument, you know, is it, is, is she really the problem or is it like everyone else in her life? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think there's also an interpretation where it's like, yeah, she's like having some issues and damaged and like, you know, needs Peter Falk there to kind of, you know, help keep it together. But I think one of the reasons why it stands up and one of the reasons why, even though it's not my favorite Cassavetes film, it winds up being, I think, the one most people want to talk about because it's kind of this Rorschach where specifically, I think, uh, young women, uh, women my age in their maybe late 20s, early 30s, there's a lot of sort of vignettes of Mabel or moments where they really really connect with what's going on for her in a way that's like not i'm crazy like her but in a way that's like that's happened to me and it like wasn't my fucking fault you know what i mean yeah so i think in a lot of ways her character is sort of this avatar of young women being made to feel like they're the problem when maybe the truth is a little more muddy and a little bit more gray um, I certainly think that's why the film has the reputation that it does because it kind of stands as a Rorschach, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, I, I haven't seen Gloria yet, which is, we skipped it for the, uh, for this um, marathon, but it's the 1980 film that he did. Uh, and I've heard that that's the most accessible for like kind of a, a, a casual movie goer. Mm-hmm. But if, in terms of like his true tried and true kind of Cassavetes movies, I think this is also a very easily digestible movie. If you can get past, if people could get past <clears throat> the seemingly mundane, right? Like, right, cause that's right. a criticism that I often hear about him. Like what's happening. Nothing's happening. It's like, well, everything's happening. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like, that's just what I want to say in response, which doesn't help anyone. But, um, but yeah, because it's, it really is just about two characters. Like that's mm-hmm. ultimately, of course there are other characters, but those two are, are in the limelight. And, and that that's an interesting interpretation that you bring up because uh, the very last point I have in my notes is that I feel for both Nikki and Mabel because sure. though because yeah. <clears throat> Peter Falk, as I said last time, is the asshole with the heart of gold, right? Like like he he means well. He's trying so hard to take care of this woman who he perceives as crazy, right? But he loves mm-hmm. her, and and I think that's very clear. He loves her. Um, I think Nikki really, really does care about Mabel, even though, you know, uh, he hits her at one point or a few times <laughs> throughout yeah, the movie, yeah. um, and and he makes some bad choices, and and it's very easy to perceive him as an asshole, um, and and he is like like I agree with that, um, but I also think about from Nikki's perspective, he's just trying to do, and this is not a justification for abuse, please clarify or just to clarify, but um, but he is trying to do all that he can. Um, but he even... How dare you? You you enabler. I know, you right? enabler. <laughs> no, no. I mean... I, no, I, I think you're absolutely right about the character, though. Yeah, that, yeah. That in, in a lot of ways, it stands in stark contrast to Husbands, where, again, I, I don't perceive any of the principal three characters in Husbands as being, you know, evil or quote-unquote bad. But they, like, they literally, like, don't mean well. Like, you know what I mean? No. <laughs> like, what they're trying to do isn't altruistic in any way whatsoever it's incredibly selfish selfish yeah i i I think there is a weird world where if you wanted to weave this tapestry of 
does Peter Falk mean well, or is that like another degree of selfishness on his part? I think that's there if you want to dig, but I do think you're accurate in saying, you know, again, unlike husbands, he, he rarely takes, you know, the most, re- uh, the most refined uh, course of action, but I do believe much more than a lot of other Cassavetti's uh, primary characters that he's trying to help her and that there is a lot of affection there and not just, um, you know, sort of baseline arrogance or pride. I, yeah. I do think that there's some real connection. There. And throughout the film, I actually truly believe he loves her. I just think he's a flawed person. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, like Which, his, yeah, his, absolutely. yeah. And, and unfortunately his love for her, uh, is filtered through those flaws. And so, you know, mm-hmm. even whenever he sends her, you know, to the hospital, it's like, I don't necessarily now. I, I don't know in real life how I would respond, but it's like, I understand, I guess I should say why he made that choice, but the way that that whole scene plays out is awful. <laughs> like it's so confusing, you know, because yeah. at one point he's almost enabling her behavior. And then at another point he's siding with the doctors and uh, like, it, it has to be so confusing, but here, here's the thing going back to like your, your playful enabler comment. I, I do want to touch on this to say that Cassavetes is so great because he sees the human condition which is we re- we reside mostly in gray area, okay? For sure. So yeah, this like is, this to is see him, thing that comes I up. get really bored with movies that just have a good guy, and then this guy is an asshole. You know, in comedies you get that a lot. There's always like maybe maybe the the female love interest has uh, this existing boyfriend who's an asshole, but then she meets this other guy who's a friend of her friends, and he's the dreamboat, but she's dating this asshole. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. And it's like he's what's clear- a girl to do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's clearly yeah. the super good guy, and then you know right. her boyfriend's clearly the asshole. When in reality, that's just typically not. Uh, how it works. I mean, there's a reason yeah, she's I, staying I think, with the asshole. And, uh, and obviously, in in rom coms, I you know they they paint with a much broader brush. Yes, because these aren't necessarily movies that we go to see to get you know uh, uh, massive morsels of the human condition. Having said that, I think the ones that are best do that more. Yeah, and I do think we can look even outside of genre cinema, we can look at other genres. And I think, I I think having a villain that is just a stark quote unquote evil guy is totally fine. As long as you do something more with it, you know, like no country for old men isn't about stopping Anton Chigar. It's about this weird human situation that this guy got involved with that a sheriff's involved with. And there's a villain that they don't understand. Now that villain happens to be stark evil but notice the point of the film isn't as simple as stop the bad guy because good is better. But with that, though, Anton Chigurh is has a code. Sure. And he's right? more interesting to watch than some <laughs> rich asshole in a rom-com. You know? Yeah, yeah. But I'm, what I'm saying, though, is like that's part of it, too. And that's part of yeah. what I don't want to say humanizes him, but like makes it a more dimensional oh, a character. More is story. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so uh, going back to Cassavetes, I, I feel like, you know, yes, Nicky has his flaws, and it might be really easy to just say, like, you know, he's an abuser or he's an asshole, but I think the nuances of being human, uh, all of us have had flaws. It does not justify our behaviors. You know, if if we're hitting anyone we love, this is problematic. I mean, there's no ifs, ands, mm-hmm. or buts there. 
Um, but I really do feel for both because I, I look at, you know, doing my nerdy, my nerdy calm, uh, calm Ooh, as you wiggle stuff. the glasses. Yeah. In as place. I wiggle. <laughs> yeah. The glasses, uh, being a nerdy calm guy. Um, I, I do, you know, demographic analysis, uh, <laughs> but I look at like Nikki, like where he must've come from or like who he's surrounded by and what his upbringing was possibly like just based on mm-hmm. what I'm seeing in the character. And it's like, I believe this person exists. It doesn't mean I have to get a beer with them or befriend them or even like yeah. them. But it's like, I feel like Nikki is a pretty realistic human being, you know? And yeah. the same thing goes with, with Mabel. I, I mean, I'm one to believe that she does have a certain level of mental illness, but I think it's kind of both. I mean, I really do think part of it is her relationship with Nikki, you know, at the beginning of the movie stands her up. So what does she do? Well, she goes out anyways, and she ends up hooking up with this guy. And, you know, there's infidelity on her part, right? Yeah. But, like, one the, the kind of through line through the, the whole movie uh, that I kind of pick up on is, like, she is constantly... It is Mabel's mission to find this something she's searching for. And I don't think that we're supposed to, like, for sure know what that something is. But there's a point where she's after, uh, she's talking to Nikki after he yells at her, and then she's, like, really hurt by it, and he's trying to calm her down and say, like, hey, you didn't do anything wrong. I'm sorry I yelled at you kind of a thing, right? And then uh, she, like, looks at him, and she's just like, Nikki, tell me, you know, how you want me to be, and... Pfft, I can't do raspberries like her, but anyways, but like, tell, tell me how you want me to be. And I can be that. Right. And she's like very adamant. And it's just so clear that she's fighting and struggling to be this something. But Mm -hmm. I, I don't even trust that she is not only that she knows, but that she's capable of identifying that thing. One, because Nikki would never outline that, you know, uh, adequately, but two, I don't know if she can be that. So you have this kind of, duality here right i think part of it is she does have some sort of maybe i don't mean to diagnose her but maybe like an anxiety disorder or something but that is also coupled with this relationship that she's in and all she wants to do because i believe mabel loves him too all she wants to do is be what he needs and she tries but every time she tries something goes wrong yeah and i i think Wow. Yeah. It's, it's very tragic when you put it in those words too. And I, I think that that drama, I think is what again, draws a lot of people to this film, not only as a Rorschach for we can project onto Mabel, however we feel about women, however we feel about men and relationships, whatever. But I do think as, as a, as an example of anyone that's been in a relationship more than a year, I think is at least a little bit familiar with that, emotional calculus that comes with spending a large amount of time with another person where, you know, at a certain point you will gradually, if not all at once inherit, you'll, you'll inherit the baggage of that other person. Yeah. And the true Testament of relationship, obviously you get to a point where it's like love is accepting this person for who they are and not trying to iron out every little thing you don't like. This becomes very, this becomes very difficult as life throws stresses at us. And also while we deal with the other person's stuff. Yeah. Um, 
so again, that's sort of a long winded way of saying, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, I think there's a reality where, um, you know, some undiagnosed anxiety thing or, or cognitive OCD thing or something sort of snowballs when faced with Nikki, faced with the pressures of life, faced with all this stuff and becomes this thing that almost fuels itself. You know, it eats itself to keep going. Yeah. And that's why when you're watching these two characters, it's just sort of like this, this, um, this march of them fumbling around what they can't help the other one fix. I mean, just talking a little bit uh, about my personal life, I've been in relationships before where um, it's almost harder to not be able to help the other person. Oh yeah. If there's, if they're struggling with something, you almost want it to be as easy as what am I doing wrong? Okay. I'll stop doing that. But a lot of times the problems, uh, not even problems, but a lot of times the stressors that come up in relationships will be unrelated to the partner. So the partner is then kind of forced to play this game where they're bearing witness to the negative experiences that are happening to the other person. And that can be tough. You know, Yeah. I think in a lot of ways, tell me what to be and I'll be it is, kind of the ultimate kind of rally cry against wanting to feel that way. Yeah. You know, I, I, well, because, I, uh, yeah, I find it interesting when you mention like, yeah, when you put it that way, it sounds so tragic. You know what I mean? Because yeah. I, 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 it's funny that also that people do seem to talk about this movie kind of more than any of his others in terms of maybe not like cinephiles, hardcore, but anybody, who might be outside of that, but who has seen a Cassavetes movie is right. probably this one. Um, and uh, it's interesting because the f- uh, I'm not going to spoil the end, although it does get pretty wild. Uh, but the end, there's no resolution there. Nothing is like resolved. And I, I again, back to truth, you know, like I feel like that's also, it's like a day at a time with a lot of people in real life, you know, like you, you uh, deal with an issue and maybe it's not fully resolved, but you know what? God damn it. You have to live. And so, you know, at the end, uh, you know, Mabel and Nikki have to decide that they have to just live. Like they have to figure out what's going on, you know? And so it's interesting because this isn't a film where you have like a rising arc and then it kind of plateaus and then it goes down right. and then it Again, climaxes, the, you know. It's the Cassavetes act structure where it's kind of just like this piece, then this piece, then this piece, you know. Yep, yep, yep. And But it's I honestly find it incredibly effective in this film. I want to t- touch on one more thing before we move on yeah. to The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, and that's the performances. Um, and, uh, you know, again, it, it goes back to Mabel and Peter Falk here. Um, and uh, a great scene with Mabel. Uh, if you haven't seen this film, or even if you have, go revisit this scene. You can go on YouTube, and if you type in A Woman Under the Influence, you'll find uh, this scene where she's trying to pick up her kids, but she doesn't have a watch. So she's trying to get the time, but she's like this manic, you know, like a middle-aged woman, and she's like running up to people, and she's like, hey, do you have the time? Like, do you have the time? Hey, what are you doing here? Like, you know, because they just walk mm-hmm. by her because they're like freaked out by her. But then she starts yeah, yelling yeah. at him and it's blowing bit, raspberries at him and yeah. and doing the dance, the Seinfeld dance that you mentioned. <laughs> uh, and and you know, she's she's ridiculous. But it's like I super believe her ridiculousness. Like, I don't feel like it's it's like um, 
uh, hyperbole or, or what like exaggerated or whatever. It's like, I feel like a real person would just be this eccentric, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and, and I can't, I can't stress enough. I mean, you know, dude, not just fluency in language. Like you talked about last time, he, like this movie is a perfect example of how fluent Cassavetes is in the human condition at large. And, um, you know, a quick kind of dual thing here with performances and Cassavetes directing, uh, Gina Rollins will take these moments of quietness when she's maybe just, just by herself or, uh, even during the dinner scene. And there are times, and especially toward the end, um, when she's really having a breakdown, there's a point where a doctor comes over to the house and this is where she completely unravels. I mean, she off the deep end big time. This is a big, big pivotal scene that I don't want to ruin. Uh, if any listeners haven't, um, this is one of those movies where it's like, I also don't blame people if they haven't seen it yet. Right. Like, please just do yourself a favor and go see it or I would just spoil it. But, um, not that you really can again, like how do you spoil a Cassavetes movie? It's, you want to keep it intact, but there's no, there's no, uh, you know, she's yeah. actually seeing dead people the whole time or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, she was dead though from the beginning. Right? Yeah. It was all a dream <laughs> the whole no, time. Yeah, n- none of that. But anyways, like, dude, those close-ups we talked about in faces and in husbands, extreme close-ups where their faces won't even fit on the screen entirely. Mm-hmm. Those really start to happen when Mabel is really losing it. Right. And especially when she comes back from the hospital. And I remember just I just noticed them. maybe they were happening before, but I didn't really pick up on them as noticeably until then. And it's just telling a story, you know, because when she comes back from the hospital, Mabel's surrounded by family and friends like they're all at her house. Pete, uh, Nikki's brought him over and she's so weird. <laughs> like she looks so uncomfortable in her skin and she's like comes in and she's very kind of docile right and very collected uh, more so than you've seen her at any first. other time at first <laughs> at first yes but she's like trying really hard and uh man you get these close-ups when people are talking not even to her and they'll just do like a quick close-up of her face and those i mean again pictures you know paint a thousand words or whatever the hell the saying is i mean that's that is this and that that's a testament both to cassavetes but also her performance, man. Like, yeah. she is so good, even just quiet. But all those little idiosyncratic things, the nuance that she brings to the character. Uh, I've heard people criticize Cassavetti's uh, actors' act performances, which blows my mind. Because, uh, like, I, I kind of get it. But at the same time, it's like, dude, I feel like I can like think of people that act weird like this. Like it's not just yeah. because one doesn't relate to it doesn't mean someone wouldn't act this way. So I I, I think uh, Mabel is uh, spot on. I mean Gina Rollins really nails it. And then you know again Peter Falk being the asshole with the heart of gold. Uh, but I really do think he means well. But there, there's a point uh, that I think just sums up his performance uh, beyond the dialogue. I mean he's always been great at dialogue. But man, Nikki's face when he sees Mabel tip over the edge when the doctor's there and she's like threatening them and she's gonna like I don't know she like runs up to the kids and she's like it's sort of it's point just of no return point of no return I mean she's she's really kind of gone over the edge and there's a point where Nikki's fighting the doctor away he's just like get away from here get away you know he's just like yelling and he's trying to, he's like he keeps telling Mabel like come back to me come back to me. Cause she's like gone. And 
there's this point where she like rushes out of the room and it just does a one of those close ups, man, on Nikki mm-hmm. and his face, dude. It's just a stare, and then he just like looks around and whatever face he's making, these expressions that he's doing sums up yeah. all of the internal conflict and struggle that he's dealing with. Um, so they uh, say, uh, you know, like a good performance is truth, right? Yeah. And that, that seems very vague and abstract until you can kind of parse together a performance that really affects you with one that you think is very poor. And yeah. I think as, as, as some that's, you know, that's like a hyperbolic, you know, like abstract performance is truth that kind of feels like it means nothing. But if you were to take something that affects you and put it alongside something you think is silly, you'll see that that's a hundred percent correct. And, and I, I think of a kind of motif in a lot of Cassavetti's work actually mirrors that. And an opening night, it mirrors it to the point where like that statement is part of the movie. Yeah. You know, we'll talk about that when we get to it, but I, I really think that, Sometimes to get to that point, um, his actors needed to push to a point that makes some people uncomfortable or makes some people feel like, well, that wouldn't really happen. And it's like, no, it's you don't decide that. Like the characters are deciding that. Maybe it works for you. Maybe it doesn't. But I, I think a lot of the people that would criticize the performances in his movies don't get that like you see where I'm going with this? Like to make it true, we have to push things to a point where those people would actually be feeling that heightened. Yeah. But I would venture to guess that a lot of people that aren't affected by that are not affected by it because it makes them uncomfortable on some level, you know, like the, the Godard thing, like, you know, my job isn't to make you comfortable. My, my job is to, you know, show you something. Yeah. Um, have you ever seen a most wanted man? Oh yeah. It was, yeah. One of Phil Hoffman's last movies. Um, that, that is a movie that, uh, I enjoyed it. It has almost like an, an anti climax. It, it had the climax yeah. is like right at the end of the movie. And it's so kind of out of nowhere. And so like, Oh, I guess the movie's over. And so it ends towards the, I don't think it's the last shot in the moon, but one of the last shots in the film is like, Phil Hoffman watch, watching, I'm, by the way, like paraphrasing my own memories, but Phil Hoffman is basically like watching a car or a person go away from him. That means like everything they did was like fucking for nothing or something. Spoilers. Yeah. And there's a long shot of just Phil Hoffman's face. Oh yeah. For like five or six minutes, it feels like that, that is, I think powerful for the same reason that Peter Fox shot is so powerful. For oh yeah. Me, you know, and, and another like we're thing, actually with them long enough to get a sense of that, you know, that truth. Absolutely. Yeah. And another thing you brought up, like, uh, acting is truth or whatever. Another, another saying that I bring up to is acting is reacting. Right. Sure. And, and, and when the scene is when you're reacting to something that escalated, right. Um, I feel like there is a point where you are also escalating with your reaction mm-hmm. and reaction, reaction, then whenever that dies, you're still reacting, but it becomes mm-hmm. nonverbal. And and I think there's a maybe no greater moment than that moment with Peter Falk. Sure. Um, but do you have any last last things to say about um, a woman under the influence? Um, yeah, I, I think anyone that hasn't seen it that's interested in checking out, you know, more of Cassavetti's films or, or diving in like 
if they haven't seen any Cassavetes film films, period, I would recommend either Faces or A Woman Under the Influence. I think those two movies uh, give you a good sense of what he does best as a director. Um, and specifically with Woman Under the Influence, I, I think that that Rorschach effect is like one of the reasons why people still like talking about the movie to this day, you know, uh, in the seventies, they, we weren't as adept at handling certain mental illnesses or whatever, but I weirdly think people connect with that. Uh, again, especially people in their late twenties, early thirties, because so many of us, I think have felt situations where someone gaslit us into thinking we were crazy or we actually had a hyperbolic reaction to something that we felt was justified or that we were pushed to that level. So again, sort of like faces, it's like there, there's elements to this that are a little like, obviously if you were to tell the story nowadays, it'd be a little bit different, but I think the underlying emotions are universal. And oh, that's yeah. one of the reasons why people like it so much. Oh yeah, dude, I'm 100% with you. And I'm just going to end my, my side of, uh, of a woman under the influence before we end this segment and go into the killing of a Chinese bookie. I am going to say this and then I'm going to make a prediction and then we're going to go. Uh, for okay. just a moment, not not for good. We'll be right back. But A Woman Under the Influence, <laughs> this is the movie that I hinted at last time. This is my favorite of Cassavetes. Um, and we'll see if that changes. I still haven't seen Opening Night. I have to watch that before yeah. we talk about it. Um, but I've seen all the other ones at this point, though. And, uh, yeah, a, a Woman Under the Influence hits me in a way that, one, I think it exemplifies... Cassa, like concentrated Cassavetes at his best. Now, not to discount Killing of a Chinese Bookie, and I'll talk about why I think that's a different side of Cassavetes. So when I say that, it's not to discount that movie. It's mm -hmm. more of like, I just think, when I think of Cassavetes, I think of this. Like, not even just this movie, but just everything this movie does. You know what I mean? Um, and so I, I strongly encourage people. I mean, this is this is a five out of five for me. I mean, this is just one of those perfect experiences that I have uh, that I've had uh, so many times. This is just one of those. And uh, so, yeah, my prediction before we take a break here is that your favorite Cassavetes is the killing of a Chinese bookie, but I'm not going to look at you because you can respond to me in a minute because <laughs> you're going to give it away. Um, but we will be right back and we will talk about the killing of a Chinese bookie in just a moment. All right, we are back with Jake Bottolieri, and we are going to be talking about right now the killing of a Chinese bookie from 1976. There are two versions of this film, uh, one from 1976, which is the theatrical, and then a recut that was, uh, what, almost 23 minutes or something cut off of it. It yeah, went from 135 yeah. minutes to 108. Uh, and before I give a synopsis or anything, um, I watched the original 1976 version which one did you watch, Jake? Because I didn't realize so that I've, we hadn't hammered this out yet. Which one? No, no, it's watch. fine. I've, I've, I've seen both. So and have I. honestly, my recollection is that the longer, like ninety percent of what's in the longer version is like more burlesque sequences. Like, oh yeah, I'm pretty sure like eighteen of the twenty three extra minutes 
is like just watch watching the the stuff at Crazy Horse. Yeah. So so, so what, what, dude, no what, one quote me on that. They can probably go to the wiki and instantly prove me wrong. But I'm pretty sure about that. No, a, a big part of what he cuts is those burlesque scenes for sure. Uh, I've seen both. The first time I watched, it, I'm pretty sure I saw the 108 minute version because I didn't have the Criterion yeah. version yet. Uh, that had mm-hmm. both because after 1978, no one saw like I don't think they ever right. screened the 76 version. Um, so for a while. yeah, so even the DVDs and stuff, I believe were that 78 version, uh, again, don't quote me on that, but, uh, I'm pretty sure that <laughs> I know that that was the common version for sure though. Yeah. And so, uh, when Criterion put it out, uh, which is the box that I believe we both have, mm-hmm. um, I wanted to watch this because I hadn't seen it before. <coughs> Excuse me. And I don't remember the differences, but in looking into it, I do also know that Cassavetes didn't just cut some stuff. He actually re-edited the film for, okay. so they're kind of like two different movies, though it's all this kind of the same footage. Um, but he did like move some stuff around and a uh, little subtle stuff like that. I, I would love to watch them back to back, but unfortunately uh, with holidays and stuff, I just didn't have time of to course. watch both. Um, but yeah, so good, good to know. So we, we both watched the extended versions. Correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, this film is from 1976. Uh, quick, quick thing: if, if you haven't seen this movie and you end up wanting to watch it, and I really, really encourage you to, uh, I found out also that you should skip the iTunes version. Apparently, and I don't oh, know if okay. it was music rights or something, but they actually cut music from pivotal moments, like when uh, dancers are dancing. Apparently, there's like no music under it. So they're just dancing oh, that's to very bizarre. super weird. And so, yeah. uh, I, but I, I haven't experienced that myself. I was just listening to some uh, people like reviewing the film and stuff, and they were like completely taken aback by it. And someone who had a DVD was like, no, there's music there, dude. Like, <laughs> like that's definitely a thing. Uh, so anyways, uh, keep that in mind. But anyways, this movie is from 1976. Uh, ben Gazzara plays Cosmo Vitelli the owner of the burlesque nightclub Crazy Horse West on the Sunset Strip. And Cosmo oversees uh, every aspect of the club, and he uh, he absolutely loves doing it. In the opening scene, though, Cosmo pays off a seven-year debt to the mob, but very quickly falls $23,000 in the hole after an all-night poker game ran by, you guessed it, the very same mob that he just paid off. Um, so Cosmo signs over his nightclub, but mobsters Mort, played by Seymour Cassell, also another uh, club owner, and Flo, played by the great Timothy Carey, can't wait to talk about him, uh, and their entourage are fed up with Cosmo. They force him into a grim situation. If Cosmo kills a Chinese bookie named Harold Ling, his loan will be forgiven. Though his desires to escape this fate, Cosmo is handed a gun, a map, a car, and is sent on what the mobsters assume is a suicide mission. Um, and funny enough, even on the mission, he still takes time to call into the club to make sure that things are running smoothly. Oh, yes. <laughs> Which is a really fantastic scene as well. Yeah. But a um, uh, little introduction to the movie. Uh, it was a commercial disappointment. I mean, a huge one. So bad that seven days after its release, it was pulled from distribution. They pulled it, yeah, that's um, right. And even Gazara hated it. Uh, the original 135 minute cut. A lot of these, a lot of things changed after they recut the movie in '78. But um, yeah, he uh, apparently Gazara yelled at Cassavetes, uh, basically saying it was too long. Um, and audiences left the theater. I love this. Audiences left the theater and would yell at the people waiting to go into the theater to see it, and they would just yell, don't waste your time. 
So people are like, they didn't just not like it. They're actively trying to sabotage the box office of this movie because they're like so insulted uh, by what this movie was. I love that we're selling it so well right now. Anyways, um, but the, uh, you know, uh, again, I watched the 1976 version. um, But if you're interested in watching the cut version, there is one from 1978. It's also a lot easier to find. Uh, I'm pretty sure the 76 version actually is only out through Criterion, but I could be wrong. Um, Also, just a real quick thing before we actually get into the film. It's a comparison I actually never thought of. Excuse me. But it's so obvious. Um, I was listening to a podcast. uh, It's like a partner podcast with Film Spotting uh, called... um, Dude, why does my brain stop working immediately whenever I go to think of the thing? Um, because they know you're not going to edit the next picture show. <laughs> there we go. They know you're not. <laughs> yeah, because I'm definitely not. Um, yeah. Well, I, of course I edit, but yeah, I, I do. I don't know why I keep <laughs> half the shit in that I do though. Uh, but anyways, so um, uh, the next picture show, a uh, pretty cool thing. But they were do- uh, uncut gems had just come out, and they mm. were doing a series like a, a double feature, part one and two, where they did the killing of a Chinese bookie which is uh, the Safdie brothers who made Uncut Gems love Cassavetes, but also love that movie. And mm-hmm. then they were going to talk about Uncut Gems. I never thought of the comparison, uh, but it's actually like it makes a lot of sense. So if you're a fan of Uncut Gems, I think this movie's going to be a slower burn and you know it's going to be tense in a very different way. Um, yeah, I think emphasis on slower and very different, but I, I think if... I think a better way to say it would be if Sandler's character in Uncut Gems does anything for you, that Gazzara has the capacity to do similar things to you. Because yeah. I think the way that they're paced, you know, the 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 deviation in the railroad, whatever you want to call it, the cross there's a crossroads where the films wind up being extremely different viewing experiences. Oh yeah. But there's there's definitely a lot of similarity in I would say the setup of both characters and what they're going through. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I definitely see uh, that comparison as very direct but loose because you're mm-hmm. right. I mean, um, you know, I find myself getting super sweaty watching Uncut Gems because it just stresses me out, and I'm like yeah. nervous for Sandler's character, and, and that does not happen in this. It's a very no. different tension. It's a very different it's feel. Dread. It's more dread than it is. Oh anxiety, yeah, great, for me at least. Great way to put it. Yeah, dread. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's. I mean, you know, it's a great in the synopsis. I mean, a, a great point that almost like harkens forward, I guess, to that Sandler character is, you know, just paid my debt off. So let's go get in more debt. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's trouble, man. So, uh, yeah, I, I am going, I, I talked your ear off about, uh, a woman on the influence because that's my favorite. I want you to start by telling me if my, if my, my guess is correct. Is this your favorite Cassavetes up to this point? Uh, well, Austin, you are correct in your assumption. Ah. Uh, the killing of a, the killing of a Chinese book is my favorite John Cassavetes film. Uh, and I love how I get to be the hipster doofus that admits that after we talk in great length about how everyone hated it and how, uh, you know, in the 70s, they were they were told to not waste their time. So <laughs> I'm the kid who found, you know, daddy's analog camera. And I'm like, isn't this great, guys? Isn't this better? <laughs> uh, but I'm I'm also happy to pick up that mantle 
uh, albeit momentarily for the Medium Cool podcast. Um, it's my favorite. And I think that there's a lot of sort of personal indulgent reasons why I could go into that. But I think those put less emphasis on the movie itself. So I, I think the, the easiest way that I can sort of express why it's my favorite uh, fits nicely into the context of this sort of Cassavetes retrospective. And that's to bring up uh, David Lynch and Blue Velvet. Uh, Blue Velvet's my favorite David Lynch film because I feel like uh, not only does it fit certain sensibilities I have for what makes you know the best movie or whatever, but it's sort of this perfect marriage of him being able to do a plot that everyone can kind of sink their teeth into, but he still gets his David Lynch shit in. And oh, likewise, yeah. I, I think if you were to watch Cassavetti's films in chronological order, Killing of a Chinese Bookie is the first time where we really kind of get I'd say a tactile plot oh, yeah. for the movie, at least in the sense of setup and at least in the sense of there are actually things in this movie that I think you can spoil, unlike the other films that are sort of like intense character examinations. Um, so that fits my sensibilities. I really like neo-noir. I really like the sort of pseudo crime films of the seventies, you know, that maybe didn't go to Reservoir Dogs territory, but you know, like Clute, like uh, The Onion Field, stuff like that, that um, had a very distinctive tone. The tone was always very dark and the plots always did things that felt realistic yet surprising. So I think if you look at Killing of a Chinese Bookie, uh, it is the perfect representation of a type of neo-noir crime cinema that have predominantly existed in 70s American cinema. Yeah. And I think that's why I like it so much. Um, yeah. Well, I, dude, well, <laughs> I, I, I can keep talking. But I wanna, I yeah, wanna, I want to I want to yeah. jump in there, actually, because this is this is really interesting because I have I have a I think a parallel perspective on this. Um, mm-hmm. So looking at it even as like a genre film, which he doesn't really do beyond like human dramas. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like. Is this a gangster film, right? And of course, of course, you know, one could easily just say yes, but it, it's really interesting right. because you know it hits all the tropes, right? Um, I mean, also think of a cast, you know, beyond the Sopranos or something, where like these humans were made to be these characters, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like Timothy Carey, Timothy Carey looks like the muscle behind some mob outfit that's going to beat some dude up in a dark alley like he just looks like a monster and he's awesome like i love timothy carey but uh yeah if you don't know timothy carey go watch anything he's the the character actor of character actors he's just the greatest and and he's even in paths of glory where he's one of the one of the deserters or whatever yeah he's so great yeah so anyways um (laughs) try not to get off on a tangent there, one of my New Year's resolutions, Jake, by the way, that is in the intro of this show, uh, is that I'm trying to keep the running times between an hour and an hour and a half. We're probably going to fail. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think that's an appropriate New Year's resolution in that most people fail immediately yeah, to yeah. do their New Year's resolutions. Yeah. <laughs> so Thanks, happy man. to enable you yeah. yet, again, yet again. Yeah. yeah. No, so it, it hits all the tropes, um, but at the same time, it doesn't do like it's like a defying of expectations, right? So Absolutely. it has all the yeah. tropes there, but when you think of a gangster movie, right? You might think of uh, something like a Goodfellas, or even 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 though like, I mean, yes, Mean Street 
is like Mean Streets is like a mob movie, but not in the same way like a Goodfellas or something is. But like you get this like there's like a certain cadence and 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 mm-hmm. style of speaking and behaving and carrying yourself. Uh, and this movie is just like across the board none of those things. I mean, fucking Seymour Cassell, you know, uh, like the dad in Rushmore, right? Yeah, is a gangster basically. <laughs> he's a club owner he's that like, is partnered he's- with gangsters. He's like he's fucking intimidating. In yes, yeah. like not not in your traditional. I'm a big guy and I'm gonna beat you up, or I'm gonna have this sort of like one great thing that I love about uh, as Craig Zoller's recent films like Dragged Across Con- Concrete or uh, Brawl and Cell Block Ninety Nine is he has these villains that just oh my god they they wind up saying these phrases and these words that are just so like dour and acerbic and cruel. Yeah. That it's it sort of defaults them. Cassell does such a great job of being intimidating, not even using any of these nuclear options. You know, he he is the epitome of the 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 gangster that intimidates you because he's being so nonchalant, because he's slapping you on the back. Um, I think a, a a seemingly very disparate film that's actually a good parallel when we talk about genre genre uh, conventions is Under the Skin with Scarlett Johansson because that's uh that's that's definitely uh like it would be hard to not call that a horror film. Yeah. It's a horror film, but it's 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 MO is very very different from what a, a lot of its peer horror films were, will will do or are interested in doing. And I I think Killing of a Chinese Bookie is kind of like that with the crime film where of course it's a crime film, but the film's MO is, is very different than your lock, stock and two smoking barrels. It's very different than even contemporary films like Les Samurai, you know? Yeah. I mean, if anything, Melville is probably like the closest comparison just because he was so interested in character the way Cassavetes is. But um, it's, it's, it feels real and yet it still has a lot of cinematic moments that, you know, warrant watching it instead of some true crime documentary, yep. you know, because that's, that's not real either. That's, that's sort of heightened in a different direction. Even, you know, I, I won't go off on a, you know, true crime rant, but um, I, I think killing of a Chinese bookie got partially unfairly criticized when it was released. But I do, if, if I could admit uh, a weak point in it, I do think the longer cut is too long. And even though I think it's very important, we see Cosmo, we see Ben Gazzara. Uh, it's so important that we see him at his burlesque club. It's so important that we see him interacting with his girls. I do think just the extended version has maybe 20 minutes too long. Um, having said that, I think one of the most powerful scenes in the entire film is um, this weird sort of sequence where a waitress at this diner he goes to next door is basically auditioning for him. Oh yeah. And I think this is, this is probably one of the sequences that is very weird. If you watch it on iTunes, like you said, iTunes (laughs) drops all the music. I'm pretty sure that's one Uh, of the scenes. Yeah. You basically have two things happening in this scene that is, that I think are, are very interesting cinematically and from a character perspective. Number one, the song that he picks for her to dance to is like, I'd have to look up what it is, but it's like, it's like cat Stevens. It's like Graham Nash. It's it's like some sad folk song. So on one hand, he's asking this girl to basically audition for him 
with a song that is like not like a sexy song. Yeah. It's like a somber song. But number two, she she doesn't really like she's not really dancing seductively. She's kind of doing like little girl ballerina moves. Yeah. You know, but it's interesting. So, go ahead. Sorry. Go. No, yeah, I was just going to say you have the weirdness of that. And then you have the like uh, uh, weird paternal thing happen where like another dancer comes in and sees the waitress auditioning and is like hurt by it, even though, you know, Cosmo's not like, correct me if I'm wrong, but Cosmo's not, he's not kissing her. They're not doing anything sexual, but it's just the idea that now that there's like a new, like youngest girl at the burlesque club really hurts this other dancer who, who maybe, you know, fancied herself Cosmo's favorite or whatever. Yeah. And that, that whole sequence is, so interesting and such a good character builder. Um, we, we, we compared him to Adam Sandler, but I, I think another really good character comparison, Adam Sandler in Uncut Gems, obviously not Adam Sandler. <laughs> and Abby Gilmore. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's a, a very disparate, but um, I, I think a great uh, comparison for Ben Gazzara's character in this is Jack Horner in Boogie Nights. Oh, sure. Because he's, he's sort of this surrogate father to these people that are involved in something that's, lurid by normal standards but his role isn't isn't really doing that you know we never see jack horner have sex with amber waves maybe they have at some point maybe they haven't but that's not really what his role is he's kind of like the dad slash older wiser husband yeah and i think there's a big parallel between that and uh ben gazera's relationship with all his burlesque dancers that is so huge to establish what makes him happy and what he has to lose by, you know, all the sort of pulpy noiry things that wind up happening with the plot. Because obviously this isn't, you know, this isn't Fargo where we're following like a family man who makes a couple mistakes and we're watching his family, you know, disintegrate. This is a different sort of family. This is a different sort of guy who has a different sort of thing to lose than your average Joe. Yeah. And the plot is a pretty typical plot. Like you could lay it out very easily, mm-hmm. you know, um, but it's the execution and the vision and the, the direction behind it that they take it. Yeah. Um, that's impressive. I want to go back to something real quick. And I also want to start with a preface by clarifying that Cosmos Nightclub, um, I've already forgotten what it's called now. What's it called? It's uh, a crazy horse something. Crazy, it's something crazy horse. I have it written down. I'm trying to find it now. Oh, Crazy Horse West. Yeah. Uh, the the Crazy Horse West uh, is, you know, for all intents and purposes, it's just like a burlesque nightclub, basically. It's not mm-hmm. like a full-grown, full-grown, full-blown strip club. Um, but <laughs> I'd like, hope it would be a full-grown <laughs> strip club if it is a strip club. I would, I would no, hope. Cosmo... The, the the difference, though, is like, you know, he, the place is pretty slow. He has his days where it's popular, and then there are other days where it's dead slow. And several of the mm-hmm. days during the movie, it's very slow, uh, especially when Seymour Cassell's club owner comes over with like three carfuls of people, brings them in. <laughs> and uh, like, that's a really slow day. <clears throat> They're like the only people there, pretty much. But Cosmo loves this place so much that he talks about the nightclub as well as believes that it's just like this this exhibit of accomplished artistry. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like like cuz they yeah. don't just strip. They don't just have women go out there and, you know, have like 
booby tassels and like shake their boobs. Like it's not about that. They have this uh, this kind of maestro. Um, oh yeah, the the MC with his uh, the MC Mr. Polish S- mustache. Yep, Mr. Sophistication. Very clearly yeah. like a fake, like almost like old vaudevillian kind of makeup yeah. setup and. Uh, and, and it's like super obvious that he doesn't need it, <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. yeah, um, but yeah, he's yeah, just yeah. doing it because it's like this character. And, uh, I mean, it's like an old cabaret or something, you know, like he's, he's the, uh, the kind of maestro, the, the MC, and then you have these other women and they take you on quote unquote journeys, right. To like mm-hmm. Paris or like these exotic places through these stories. That it's like Mr. a, it's like a variety show. It's, yeah. it's, you know, just with maybe a little more titillation than, uh, you know, your typical, uh, your typical fare. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but what's interesting though, about the scene you brought up where the, where the, uh, the server, like, uh, mm-hmm. basically like auditions for him. Um, you know, in, in the film, when you're in the burlesque show, the camera, I would argue never shows the nudity on stage in a sexy way really no, it's almost no. very it's, clinical it's incredibly it's like, observational yeah yeah it's just like this yeah. exists right like they're not it's not cool or it's not like it's very sloppy intentionally um mm-hmm. and very like i don't know it just looks like they're just having fun like no one's like yeah doing a strip tease really they'll like pull their boobs out or whatever sometimes but it's like they're like cracking up and you know, I don't know. They usually do it when like the guys in the audience are like, "Take off your top," like you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's it's silly. But um, like often, Cassavetti's camera will just kind of wander away from the nudity or anything like titillating. But what I noticed, and this stood out to me, is that, and I have notes on the scene you just brought up because whenever he's with the server and she auditions, you'll notice the camera actually goes from her face, and there's a point where it cuts her head off, and he's just looking at her chest. Mm-hmm. Um, and because like as a nightclub owner that, you know, deals with, you know, titillating material, right. (laughs) Um, like what else is he going to look at? You know what I mean? Like he's, he's like, Hey, does she have what it takes to be at my club? Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's a very interesting kind of almost character development, that scene where like he's in many ways, like exploiting this woman to basically just like see if she has what it is. So that also adds like a context in many ways to why the other, uh, dancer, if you will, or, or performer, uh, comes in and is jealous. You know, it's because he's right, essentially right. ogling this woman. Yeah, you know, I mean, it is part of his job, but I guess it being part of her job doesn't mean she has to be comfortable with it. Yeah, right? yeah, she's gonna feel what she's gonna feel, and in that scene, I also really like how she he tries to get her to like have a drink to calm down. Yeah. And she like won't even open up her mouth, so he just like pours the drink on her lips. <laughs> For some reason, that's just like that's always like an image that like just I really I really remembered from the film. There are so many is that weird... like that stubborn like it is there a better like is there a better like visual metaphor for like feel better? No, I don't wanna than like a drink pouring off of your lips because yeah. you won't drink. What a weird scene. And like, it's amazing. There are so many amazingly weird scenes. And this is a stark contrast to the film we just talked about. I mean, think about it this way. Unlike his previous film, A Woman Under the Influence, which we just talked about, uh, which follows a husband and wife as they navigate the wife's mental illness, wrought with screaming and arguing. I mean, that's a loud, like, A Woman Under the Influence has its soft, quiet moments, but it's a loud movie. 
like Peter Falk yeah. can't be quiet. Like that's an impossibility. Yeah. <laughs> and in this movie, uh, Gina Rollins is just as loud and eccentric and wild. It's a loud mm-hmm. movie, not literally like in terms of like decibels, yeah, yeah, yeah. but they're just, just in, always in yell. Like, when, yeah. It, thank you. Beautiful mm-hmm. way to put it. And the, the energy yeah. is loud. And then now juxtapose that to the killing of a Chinese bookie, which is for the content, think of it as a gangster movie. You know, you might think of it as being perfect for being this loud energy. Yeah. But it's actually way more subdued. It's, I would go as far as to say it's quiet and it just burns. It's it's understated. It just burns slow, dude. I mean, and, and I mean that as a compliment. It burns slow. And so in my notes, I put if a woman under the influence is flowing water. The killing of a Chinese bookie is molasses, and I mean that as a compliment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you sure. know, because yeah, it know. just burns slow, and the energy is quiet. Uh, even, even even everything in the first two thirds, like uh, there's a little bit more going on after he infiltrates the quote unquote bookies compound. Without spoiling anything, say the last third has a little bit more energy attached to it, but even that, that's relative. And uh, when we're still setting up the plot and there's so many sequences of like Cassell threatening yeah. um, and Ben Gazzara, it's, it's never like, again, it's, it's never like, you're going to be fucking dead in the ground next to, no, it's always like the, that weird gangster subtextual thing where it's like, so I don't know, maybe you want to do this because if you don't. I don't know. Maybe we're going to have issues. You know, it's very, well, dude, think about this. It's very much a subtextual threatening thing. Well, think about this, right? Um, They talk to Cosmo. They pull Cosmo out of the club. They talk to him at a diner. Mm -hmm. Very quiet scene. Most of the time, if I, if I remember correctly, sometimes there's kind of a wider shot of all of them, but mostly it's on Cosmo as they're talking to him. If I remember correctly. I just watched this last night, but I'm. This is a memory I'm uh, uh, at a loss for right now. But so I'm pretty sure it focuses on Cosmo, right? And it's it's still quiet. There's even a later scene where where Timothy Carey's uh, character Flo takes Cosmo to a dark alley, and it's the most yeah. uncomfortable walk because he has his arm so firmly, and he's walking him like a kid that's about to get whipped in a back room. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Um, but he like walks him to this dark alley and then punches him a few times. And all Cosmo says is, I think I get the message. Yeah, <laughs> and he yeah. stops and then they walk out arm in arm again, but just like way yeah. more like subtle. But even when he's punching him, it's not like, psh, psh, yeah, yeah. It's like not, it's this it's, guttural it's not Shaw Brothers sound yeah, effects or anything. Yep, yep. Like it's that. this subtle, like, like just a very simple. Sound. I mean, all of it, but the, the the most incredible scene. I mean, this is one of my favorite scenes of the whole movie. I'm curious what where this would kind of fit in terms of like your signature scenes, because sure. this is mine. Is when they are, you know, they have he's in the hole for twenty three grand, and he, you know, even though he's you know talked about or signed over his club or whatever. They say they'll erase it if he kills the bookie, right? But instead mm-hmm. of just giving him a choice, they, of course, don't. Why would they do that? Right. So they're like, hey, you're going to kill this guy, and we will get rid of your your debt. And they they give him the gun. They give him the map and show him exactly how to get there. They give him yeah. a, a car, which we'll get to in a second because that's also another great scene. Yeah. But they you know, they they get the uh, they give him the car, and then they're like, all right, good luck. And um, 
that scene is shot in a car. So Cosmo's mm-hmm. between Flo and this other guy who's driving. He's in the front mm-hmm. seat in the middle, right? There are like two or three guys in the back seat. You can't see any of their faces except for Flo. You see his face in kind of some of the reflected light, but yeah, it's yeah. It, they're like silhouettes behind like uh, uh, front like uh, front car lights or whatever passing yeah, yeah. by, mm-hmm. and so it's incredibly dark. And they're just very calmly talking to Cosmo about what he needs to do, and that quietness, man. I mean, again, stark contrast to faces. To husbands, I mean, husbands, when are they not yelling at each other? Yeah, yeah. Cassavetti's M.O. is being drunk and screaming. Like, Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. The, like, that's the thing. And the killing of a Chinese bookie, I, I just really felt, now that we're kind of watching these in chronology, this really stood out to me as an incredibly quiet film. What say mm-hmm. you, especially with that uh, signature scene that I would call uh, the scene where they're in the car and it's like pitch black pretty much. Yeah, uh, I like that scene too. Again, I I think it's it's funny in the context of this marathon because again, it's it's I I would struggle to think of another Cassavetti scene I've seen up to this point that is as plotty as that scene. Oh yeah, it's it's here's what the next you know twenty five thirty minutes of the movie is going to be. Um, I I think why I find it so effective in this film is putting it in context for what a lot of other films were doing at the time. Uh, you say neo-noir. And one of the things that I think, um, one of the things that I think is, is indicative of noir first wave noir in the late forties, early fifties is, you know, the sense of defeatism that people were feeling after world war two. It's like, yeah, we won the war, but like, I don't know, we had to drop atom bombs. A lot of our relatives are dead. And I think a lot of that mentality came back in the seventies for one reason or another, you know, optimism of the sixties had died off. Um, you know, around 76, we're starting to get into a uh, recession in America. And I really think the quietness of that movie plays into this bigger picture of seventies defeatism. That was so obvious in uh, crime films of the time. And um, when we think about, Cosmo is a main character. Um, I think there's a parallel with John Marley's character in Faces and that mm-hmm. we're following a character who is a little bit later in life. Yeah. Uh, unlike Marley, where the thing he's basically losing out on is, you know, youth, this sense of youth. There's a parallel in terms of, obviously, uh, Cosmo keeping those girls around, right? But what's interesting about Killing of a Chinese Bookie is that it's it doesn't seem to be sexual. It really seems to be almost like this occupational thing that... I'm sure, you know, obviously it feels good to be working alongside beautiful women, but for him, I don't think it's sexual. For him, I think Cosmo is just this really kind of weird, quirky character that finds his niche trying to infuse art into these weird burlesque performances. I mean, the Jack Horner thing, right? Like the Jack Horner thing where he's trying to make porn like art. You know what I mean by that. He he says, I I want them to stay in the theater after they've, you know, shot their goo or whatever. That's what he says (laughs) in Boogie Nights, right? Something like that. I know, but that's such a funny way to put it. It's obvious Cosmo has the same attitude towards this little slice of, you know, you know, you'd struggle to say he works in the entertainment industry, but like by definition, he works in the entertainment industry. And I, I think there's a parallel of defeatism there, right? That he's, he's kind of fighting the windmills with trying to get 
drunk people on Hollywood Boulevard to like not just want to see tits. I think in a similar yeah. way, he obviously is making decisions with his personal life and how he uses money that that is, you know, he's he's sort of digging his own grave in that regard. Yeah. Uh, but but the big swerve of the film is, is, of course, like, you know, I don't want to spoil everything, but he does what you think he's going to do based on what the title of the movie is. But there's a sequence of events that 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 happen as he's doing it and afterwards that kind of reveals, you know, he he was he was being misled by the people he was in debt indebted to. Yeah. And uh I I think it's it's ironic in the context of the movie because how can you get any more defeatist than no one thought you would be able to pull this off? You did anyway. And it's not good enough. Like you're still not going to get rewarded for it. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> that is the definition yeah. of I think that that genre bound defeatism that we can see in movies as far back as The Killing, and we can see in movies as recent as Uncut Gems. You know, if we think about how that movie ends, yeah, yeah, <laughs> everything's fine. No, it's not. Like you already dug the grave. Yeah, you know? and and I just want to say uh, that. Uh, the Killing of a Chinese Bookie does not have a direct parallel ending to Uncut Gems. Very different endings. Because right. I'm trying not to spoil the end of it, too. Because yeah. The Killing of a Chinese Bookie has a very interesting ending. And in the long version, in the 135-minute version, after he kills the bookie, because, duh, there's like right. 45 minutes left. There's, yeah, <laughs> like, there's like, a long, I'm sure, in, yeah. I'm sure in a 108-minute version, there might be 25 or something. But there was like, I'll, I remember looking at the time just to see like, man, this went quicker than I thought. I was like, oh no, there's still like a third of the movie left. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and then it though, turns... Though you, will, you would agree that there's a parallel in terms of, of thinking we have a solution to all our problems and... Oh yeah. It no, 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 no. Yeah. In, in theory... Yeah. Right. Or like, or like subtextually, I do. Yeah. They end. The characters have very different ends. I'll just say that. True. Right? True. The, <laughs> if the, you get the tone I'm... of how we leave both of them is very different. Correct. Yes. Yes. Um. But uh. Yeah. Uh. So. I. I want to talk about one thing. I want to get your opinion on this real quick. I want to go to performances. Ben Gazzara. This is my favorite era of him. By the way, same. Yeah, um, same. I mean, I, I I liked him in, in earlier stuff, even like Anatomy of a Murder, back in what was that fifty nine or something. You know, he was really young, um, and then you know later, even in something like nineteen ninety eight with Buffalo sixty six or or um, <laughs> a very which, bizarre performance. But I I love. Oh that my movie. god, I love that movie, mm-hmm. and I love him in it. But I also love him in the Big Lebowski. We got to do a podcast on on Gallo at some point because I feel like his stuff is so interesting, and it's like rarely i think explored to the level that it should be yeah i'm not gonna watch brown bunny again i'm just letting you know but i'll watch <laughs> how about how about just watch uh 10 minutes towards the end of brown bunny again? sorry which he's referring like, to basically yeah. just a blowjob but anyways yeah. um so uh <laughs> i have a lot to say about that i'm not going to um so dude this is my favorite era of Gazara. I love when he starts to get the salt and pepper hair, but he still has For like sure. like this almost like youthful but middle aged look. His voice is super strong, um, but this character in particular I really love because he's yeah. um, it is that man. He's just he loves his nightclub, and that's his number one. 
right? That's, I mean, again, whenever, so he gets the car to go perform this, this hit on this mm-hmm. bookie air quotes and, <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and I love that people will have no idea what we're talking about. I can't wait for you to watch it. Uh, yeah. But anyways, so they, you know, he's driving there. And what is it? A flat tire? Is that what happens? So the car just breaks down. Yeah, forget, he, gets a, he gets a flat. He breaks down at the side of the highway. Like, yeah, which on is the way great. To do the fucking. So hit. he yeah. runs across, and you think he's going to call the mob guys and say like, "Yo, your shit just <laughs> busted. I need help." Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he calls the club to find out who's on right now and what songs yeah. they're playing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like the, just again, back to defying expectations. This is yeah. this person's concern. It's not, I think it, it's like, he wants this dope hit. Like he needs to like hear that shit's going well so that he could continue having this like Sisyphean night from hell. Yeah. That's this after hours night that's doomed to fail, you know, which is great because it's not going the way he wants it. <laughs> Right. He's just like yelling right. and singing the song to them, you know. Yeah. Um, like then you need he to needs play that this to one. like to like retake control. You like know? he has control, yeah. And that, that's how I took that as well. But it's just like what an interesting character and how well it's played, especially, you know, there there are these like uh bookend scenes. And I don't want to rush us talking about this, but I, I have like two more things to say and I want to hear what you have to say. Um but uh there are these bookend scenes where he's backstage with with all of the uh, performers and Mr. Sophistications in there. And the first time early on, you know, he's talking, he's kind of quote unquote pep talking. It's a pretty lame pep mm-hmm. talk, but he's telling, he tells them a joke and it's not funny at all. No one laughs and he thinks it's funny because it's not funny. It's a terrible joke. <laughs> but um, anyways, like, you know, he's, he's trying to talk with them. He's trying to make sure everybody knows what they're doing. And then, you know, the show goes on at the end uh, Mr. Sophistication, and this isn't like spoiling anything, but Mr. Sophistication believes he deserves more. He believes he's one of the people that brings asses to the seats and, you know, he wants more. And th- there's this, this like the way that Gazara kind of pep talks that in like a bookend after mm-hmm. all of this stuff, he, I just heard strange yelling from downstairs, but anyways, <laughs> probably my daughter, but anyways, so, um, but Gazara is like, he just did all of this shit in the movie, all this crazy stuff that would have all of us, you know, sweating bullets and just like our stomach in knots. And although he is that, he when he's backstage with them, he's home. He just like, completely it just, goes back yep, into yep, light switch and uh, he's captain that of the ship mode until he leaves that room, right? And right. then he steps outside and you see what you see, I'll just say it very vaguely, but you know what I'm talking about. You know, and he holds, he, yeah. And, um, and at one point I think he even tells Flo, the Timothy Carey character that like he has stomach problems right now or something, you know what I mean? And you can tell that there's so much anxiety in this guy, but when it comes to his first love, which is this goddamn nightclub, he can flip it like a switch. This is the Mm -hmm. thing in his most intense moments. Um, in moments where he perceives an impending doom, he can flip it like a switch and he can be that person. Uh, and dude, I just, I, I really like Ben Gazar's character because it seems, he seems so subtle, but idiosync or, uh, uh, not idiosyncratic. Um, I've used that too much already. Um, it's fine. I'm guilty. What's, what's the word? Like he's eccentric to me. Sure. Uh, even though I feel like that implies something different, like he's just such a weird guy to me because of the choices and priorities that he sets. Mm-hmm. But I love that about him. 
Um, it's great. Yeah. Like I, I want to hear your thoughts about character worth following. Yeah. And I, I want to say one more thing and then I want to hear your thought about the performance and then we'll kind of bring this to a close here. Um, cause I've already, I've already broken my resolution. <laughs> I, hey, this we're, is we're it close. takes two to tango. Yeah, so but no, but I'm, we're I'm close. Sure I'm part of that. We're, we're 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 actually like right now we're at about an hour and a half, so like we're good. But it's okay. Good. So, anyways, um, but Timothy Carey again, I can't stress enough. You brought up the killing. I always forget he's like the guy who shoots the horse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like um, and says the n word. Oh wow. Okay. Uh, no, uh, Timothy Carey is so good. Um, and everything I've ever seen him in. He's also in Minion Moskowitz, which is another Cassavetes movie, but I haven't seen that one all the way through. I've only actually seen his scene uh, in a in a restaurant or whatever. Um, but man, he is so good. If you get a chance, uh, he actually did an independent film. I can't remember when it was. I'm actually going to look it up while I'm talking, which I'm very bad at doing that. Um, but he did one called, I think, The World's Greatest Sinner. Mm. I'm looking it up right now. And um, The World's Greatest Sinner from 1962, let's see, I think his son, I want to say, um, ended up finishing it because he died. Oh, interesting. Um, by the time, now, they started shooting this in like 1962 or something. My buddy had like a bootleg copy of it, like like literally on a DVD with no cover. <laughs> like, like there was like, you couldn't get it anywhere. This was just like a bootleg thing. We watched it. I don't remember it very well. But Timothy Carey in the early 60s, was also trying to do an independent film that he funded himself. Um, I do remember at one point he has like a needle and he stabs a communion wafer. Um, and it's like a really intense scene, which sounds hilarious. Um, but yeah. uh, you, uh, I would encourage anyone who's like a true film fan to like just watch it just so you can mark it off the list. I mean, it's just like an interesting kind of obscure thing. I don't think it really ever got a theatrical thing. But anyways, Timothy Carey's a really interesting character actor. Uh, and I mean, has an like uh, an... Um, you can't mistake an unmistakable look, right? Like when yes. you see him, he's no and one else. And timbre of his voice. Oh my gosh. Yeah. He has yeah. that overbite and he's that giant, like he's just a big guy. And uh, man, he's, he's really great. I know I didn't really say anything about his performance because I don't know what to say other than like, this is just written for him. Like he just fits yeah. it so so well and it's just such a if you've watched a lot of timothy carey movies this is such a timothy carey character mm-hmm. um but anyways i want to get your thought on the performances before we start to close this up jake so go for it yeah um i completely agree with everything you said i i, I think one good thing about this era of ben Gazera is you really get a sense of him being this like weathered man whether he's portraying cosmo in this film or something else uh he's got that gaze that you could just tell it's like half wisdom half like forlorn defeat almost and it it really really lends itself to this character i could think of some recent joaquin phoenix performances that kind of have a similar vibe you know when where he's just been portraying these characters that feel so perfect for his general look and what you can tell is just going on behind his eyes uh great performance and it's bolstered by as you mentioned some great character actor performances in supporting roles. Um, I think this film is uh, really, really, really good. It's my personal favorite because I'm such a fan of the genre. I think anyone that's in the crime should see it. Um, and it's 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 understated. It it it's funny that the I like your your sort of loud energy like flowing water molasses comparison because it's very very different from 
A Woman Under the Influence and most of Cassavetti's other films. Yeah. It is understated. But I think uh, for people that have patience, it's absolutely rewarding. And uh, it's the I think it's the most genre-y that he's ever gotten. There's moments of opening night that kind of play this weird dipping into other genres game, but not to the point where you would say he did a genre film. And I think this is the closest Cassavetti's ever came to that. Yeah, dude, I, I totally agree. And, and uh, though it's easy to call it uh, a gangster movie. It's like so much more than that because it still yeah. is Cassavetti's, uh, you know, essentially defying expectations as he always does. But it seems so much more in this because you do have expectations of a genre like that, mm-hmm. and it is very much not that. So if <laughs> if you're expecting to go into this and expecting Goodfellas or even something like Taxi Driver, you're that's not what this is. This right. is not Mean Streets. This is not any of those. I've named only Scorsese movies, but the point is, uh, it's, it's none of those. Uh, it's very different. It's funny because it came out the same year as Taxi Driver. I think like that post-Vietnam era too is is not only the like the defeatist uh, 70s kind of thing you were talking about, but also um, it's funny because it also feels like in a time where a lot of new young filmmakers uh, during this like new Hollywood era are bucking the system and trying to do new things, I feel like Cassavetes, who came from the studio system as an actor and then is now, you know, a part of this whole new Hollywood group, essentially, uh, is bucking the system in even a different way. Um, yeah, he was always kind of doing his own thing. Correct. You know? Yeah. So even even among all these new Hollywood guys, which there isn't just like, you know, there there are too many checkboxes for any one person to check all of what new Hollywood was like. It's just too mm-hmm. broad. It's like an umbrella it it was more of like a movement yeah without boundaries almost <laughs> like uh i don't know it's different but uh though he fits in that th- this is just a really unique movie from the time i totally get why people hated it at the time to be honest but i think it's one of those you know to use a, a cliche like wine it gets better with age right i feel yeah, like the more movies sure. we see um, uh, not only personally, but the more movies that come out that we see as the years go on, I feel like the more you can kind of appreciate what Cassavetes was doing, um, and not just giving you another Godfather or not just giving you like, I don't know, just some thriller, like, I don't know, Marathon Man or something, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, which I love all of the movies I've mentioned, Same. but this one Same. is, this one is just very different. So, you know, uh, if you agree or disagree with, uh, our feelings about a woman is a, a woman is a woman. Wrong movie. A woman under the influence. Very different movie. Um, but if you agree or disagree with our feelings about a woman under the influence or the killing of a Chinese bookie, please hit us up on social media, which I've already stated multiple times in the intro, and definitely will in the outro as well. You'll get it. Just hit us up, Medium Cool Pod. Um, Jake, how do you feel about this? You still feel good? I feel great. Uh, it's been really rewarding to sort of go through. Cassavetti's uh, catalog and just, uh, you know, revisit the ones I like and see new ones and kind of just take the 2020 lens on yeah. all of them. Um, it's been interesting. And I, uh, again, I, I think these are movies that are very rewarding. So anyone listening that hasn't seen them, at least pick one or two that sound good and check out. I, I, I would say anyone that is seeing Killing of a Chinese Bookie for the first time, I would recommend the 108 minute version just because I think it's a little easier to kind of digest in one sitting. So Yeah, and it, I, I feel like it's just tighter. Even though yeah. I'm a nerd and, you know, it's fun to watch the extended one just to see all the extra shit that he filmed. 
It's just as you were even saying, yeah. like it's a little loose. It could be tighter. Um, it's a it's a more well proportioned meal, even if the portions are smaller. Yeah, yeah. So couldn't agree more. Um, it seems like Jake and I yet again, um, with the exception of having differing favorites, are are on the same page. We still like them. I don't foresee us disliking any of these, to be honest. But I will be really curious to hear what you think about opening night and love streams next time. Um, for sure. And we don't have a date set for that yet, but we're going to, and I will be sure to uh, update all of our listeners uh, on when that will be. Um, but yeah, so that wraps up uh, part two of our John Cassavetes marathon. Um, again, if you get a chance, go check out A Woman Under the Influence, uh, which I think is more broadly just kind of the accessible general go-to. And then you have The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, which is, as we talked about, a really rewarding film and uh, just something altogether different than any of the films we've talked about or will talk about, I'd say. Uh, so anyways, check those out, and I will be right back. Jake, thank you so much, buddy. Thanks for having me, man. Well, 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 another awesome conversation with Jake Bottolieri. That is our part two of our Cassavetes Marathon. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, just remember that uh, be sure to be here next week when we talk about Todd Haynes' Safe, the 1995 film starring Julianne Moore. Um, if you don't know about that, Todd Haynes is the guy that made Carol from a few years back. If you were a fan of that, if you still don't even know what that is, um, just trust me. Just like show up. Listen to this shiz because Todd Haynes rules. Um, so I hope that you enjoy that. Also, Hayao Miyazaki. I mean, come on. Who doesn't like Miyazaki? If you don't, you're probably like a zombie. Like, what's happening? It's, like, it's, Miyazaki rules. And so we're either going to be talking about My Neighbor Totoro, Princess Mononoke, or Spirited Freaking Away. Totally hyped about that. It's going to be really great. We're going to talk about the two films. It'll be Joe and I. And uh, I'm really, really excited about that. So please tune in for that. We'll see if I can actually hit the 60 to 90 minutes. I'm actually going to talk to Joe about it. I'm really going to try. That's that's my goal. Not that it's even that important. It's just like a cool goal that I want to do. Also, don't forget, highly recommend Brandon Cronenberg's Processor. See, I always want to say, I, I mess it up. Possessor. Possessor from this year. Go check out Possessor. Uh, you can find it on uh, Amazon Prime. I'm sure you can find it many other places, but Possessor's awesome. Definitely go check that out. Um, but with that, on that note, if you agree, disagree, uh, you know, whatever, send your feedback to Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That is facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, will pop up, and you can at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter, and we'll be there. Heck, just go to at Austin Glidden and you'll find me and you can tell me directly if you want why I'm wrong or why I'm right or why you love me or why I'm the best. I mean, all these things are just fine. And then also you can send feedback to mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Definitely do that. Now, something I forgot to do up top, but I will do now is please subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. Subscribe, follow, whatever it is. Leave us a rating if you can. I hope you enjoy it and, you know, review whatever you want to do. That really honestly does help us out and it helps us uh, be able to also get better opportunities so that we can give you better content. So, um, yeah, help us fine tune and and uh, send us your feedback. So with all of that said, we'll get to part three of the Cassavetes Marathon sometime in the future. Next week, I'll be talking with Joe about Todd Haynes and Miyazaki. It's going to be awesome. But until then, good night. 
Good luck. Take it easy.